Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Mass General Cancer Center, dedicated to providing the latest therapies and cancer specialists who are experienced in your cancer. When you hear the word cancer, their team is ready. Learn more at massgeneral.org slash cancer. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, over the past 70 years, actress Cicely Tyson used her career to lift black people up. She refused to take parts that demean them and urged black colleagues to do the same. She's died at age 96. Our TV guy, Bob Thompson, will join us to review her remarkable career. And later in the show, Dr. Catherine Gergen-Barnett will join us to take our questions and your calls on all things coronavirus. Under Brexit, the European Union announced tighter vaccine export rules to block COVID vaccines from being shipped across the Irish border into Britain. After outcry from Britain, Ireland, and the World Health Organization, the plan was reversed, highlighting the complexities of Britain's decision to leave the European Union. GBH News Analyst Charlie Sennett will join us to discuss this and more. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. And you're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Happy Monday. And to you. Can I get something out of my system for 60 seconds and then That's we'll move on here, to Jim. the topic? Yep. You know, I'm listening to the NPR News at 11 o'clock talking about how the 10 Republicans are proposing a compromise, one third as much as the 1.9 right. trillion, are meeting with Biden this afternoon. And at that moment, I was reading a New York Times story about how appalled Republican leaders are in Congress that that uh, Joe Biden has the audacity to be contemplating providing $2 trillion of relief to the American people without any Republican votes. And I'm saying to myself, these are the same Republicans who did $2 trillion in tax cuts for mostly the wealthiest Americans without one single Democratic vote. So what's good for the goose apparently is not good. For the gander, what hypocrisy it is! Well, By the way, I, I mean, hope is a bipartisan deal, assuming it's good enough. But really, can we be can we be honest here? They're, they're, I think I am. G- being, the GOP yes. has totally lost its way. Oh my! They're going God. after they're going after Cheney from Wyoming because oh, she no. was oh, no. honest in a vote, and they're and they're coddling up to that that crazy woman down in Georgia, Taylor Marjorie Green, Taylor yeah. Greene. I mean, yeah. it's just who. By the way, apparently privately told a, a mother who lost her son, a teacher at Parkland, that she doesn't really believe that these, that these school shootings are false flags, but she just can't admit it publicly. I mean, really? Anyway. Exactly. In any case, that isn't our topic, but we feel better now. So exactly <laughs> one year ago, the first case of coronavirus in our state, Massachusetts, was confirmed when a UMass Boston student was diagnosed with the virus. Today, you all know this, half a million Massachusetts residents have been infected with the coronavirus. More than 14,000 of us have died. And while the state is struggling with its vaccine rollout, phase two starts today. That means residents who are 75 and older move to the top of the phase two priority list. An imminent snowstorm, unfortunately, is making this a perfect storm. The mass vaccination site at Reggie Lewis Center, you just heard Henry say this, I think, has closed for the day. The vaccination site at Fenway Park is urging people to show up at least an hour in advance of their scheduled appointment, so they should get taken care of today. Maybe the, all the afternoon people may not. And who knows how many people have to cancel and start the scheduling process. Well, they want them to start over again. They will at Fenway, I know. And actually, the people who are running it, the, the marketing director for CIC Health is going to be with me today on TV. They're just going to begin given another date certain. Uh, So we're taking your calls asking you, 
Are you among those, a minority, who actually has this vaccine success story? Or is the hope that you put in the vaccine getting us on the other side of the pandemic fading with all the mess and the snowstorm and inability to get an appointment? The number is 877-301-8970. Let me say we've talked a lot about this lately. We're going to continue to talk about this almost every day until the state gets totally back on track. When I woke up this morning, first thing I did, I used to go to Trump's Twitter account. Now I go to the Washington Post to see where Massachusetts ranks and vaccinations. We have dropped to 41st out of 50 states and D.C. in the country. 41st. Uh, There's not a huge amount of distance between like 41st and 31st, but the fact remains we are 41st in the nation and it's inexcusable. 877-301-8970. Want to hear your stories, your concerns, your psychological angst, whatever it is. What are you laughing about? Actually, your mic's Michael. not on. Oh, here you Did are. You I missed Michael, the first email? half of your sentence didn't make it. Can you say it again? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Michael just emailed. Yeah. What the F? He had a question mark. He said, we can walk into Best Buy, flash the phone of a barcode, a Sony TV, and get instant competitive quotes from five different stores. But when it comes to using it for the public good, we can't register with the state once and then be informed when the next public or private appointment is available. Hello, Apple, Google, <laughs> useless. Well, you know what I did, which I never, <laughs> ever, ever do? I listened to portions what? of our show over the weekend from last week. You did? I don't know How'd if I we wanted sound? to. Uh, well, I'm, I wasn't to hear how we sounded. I wanted to hear the segments where people <laughs> called in listen. and talked about their travails. Uh, yeah, trying terrible. To get, you know, mostly the 40 year old or 30 year old children of 75 plus year old parents. Then the Globe had a story this weekend, uh, but they tracked five seniors, some of whom ultimately succeeded, some of whom. Didn't, it's heartbreaking. It is totally heartbreaking. And the more you read, and I'm sure everybody is as up to speed as we are from paying attention over the weekend, the more these variants spread you know, to state, to state, to state. And by the way, Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett's going to be with us one to two today to answer all of your coronavirus questions. Uh, again, one to two, she'll take your calls. The more you read, as we've said, this is a race. You, is the vaccine going to get in your arm before the variants take over, or is it not? And uh, we got to step it up. Uh, The nation's got to step it up for sure. But Massachusetts really needs to uh, uh, step it up to get us in the mix. So whatever. 877-301-8970 is our number. BPR at WGBH.org is the email. And you can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Uh, Let's start with John in Bedford. How's it going for you, John? Hey, John. Well, it's going well now. Uh, last week, I on uh, Wednesday, I, I tried to get a vaccine appointment. I am over 75, mm-hmm. and uh, I tried about a dozen different sites from CVS to Family Park to Gillette, all over the place. No luck at all. So I gave up on Wednesday. Thursday morning, first thing around 6.30, I went to Gillette knowing that it was a mass vaccine site, and there were hundreds of appointments available. So I was able to get an appointment for this Thursday, uh, this Wednesday, I'm sorry, this Wednesday afternoon. And what I subsequently learned was that they release uh, appointments on Thursdays. So that's why I was able to get an appointment uh, signing up on a Thursday and got nowhere uh, for a Wednesday. 
By the way, let me be clear. So you did was, it. Uh, you signed up for an appointment in person. You signed up for it at Gillette. No, 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 online. Oh, online. online. Okay. Online. Well, let me let me reiterate yeah. what you said. The story. The Globe this weekend confirmed exactly what you said, John. The governor said the other day that every Thursday, there, uh, I assume at midnight, you know, twelve oh one, is when right. appointments will be released for the mass vaccination sites. Uh, and the ones right. relevant to us out here, obviously, are Gillette, Fenway, which opens today, and Reggie Lewis, which was supposed to be open today, will open tomorrow. So that's excellent advice, John. We're glad you're scheduled, and good luck to you, and be healthy. 877-301-8970. I'm really glad he brought up that point because we forgot it. Thursday, according to the governor and John from Bedford, is the day to be prepared to begin the next round of torture, where you get up at 12.01, spend a few hours, and... Hope for the best. 877-301-8970. I'm sure everybody's paying attention incredibly closely now. After the 75-year-olds, doesn't mean they'll all be done. At some point in February, uh, Governor Baker will announce the next group, which is 65 and older, and those with two or more comorbidities. After that group, I assume a few weeks later, will be all those essential workers. And then I believe tentatively scheduled for April, depending on supply, uh, we will. Uh, it'll be open to the uh, general uh, population. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Bob from Cambridge. Thanks for calling. Hello, Bob. Hey, how are you? First time caller, long time listener. You're very kind. Oh, thank you very Good much. Good to talk to you. What's up? So I have a eighty four year old father, a seventy mm-hmm. five year old mother in law, both who have other issues. And the only appointment I could get them after a week of trying, I have to drive three hours out to North Adams, get them their shots and drive back. And then I'll get to do it again for round number two. And every day I hear Charlie Baker saying, oh, there's appointments available. Just get on your computer. I'd like to know what magic computer he has, because mine says zero. But But, what really gets me. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. no, what really gets me is this morning I'm listening to NPR. West Virginia's got it down pat. If you keep sending them vaccine every day, I guess they're doing the right thing with it. They're not storing it. They're giving it to people. They said they'll be done yeah. by March. Maybe yep. shut down the country and have everybody go to West Virginia. <laughs> Either that or fire everybody in the government and have West Virginia run the vaccine program. I don't know which one would be better. West Virginia it was worse than it is now. I can't wait till Thursday so I can get up at twelve oh one and sit there with a cup of coffee and see if I can save three hours of my life each way. See, oh, oh, you're going to try to see if you can get another appointment. And yeah. uh, oh, and Lou. By the way, one you uh, deserve an award. I mean. This it's so good of you to do this for your family. But did you really do this every day for how long did you how much time did you spend in total before you were able to get these two appointments? As soon as they announced that the vaccine was going to be available for group two, I started. Every day. Unbelievable. And my wife every day. And I have to tell you something, the most frustrating part is is we'd be calling each other going, He's on the radio right now, there's more appointments. Well, after you muddle through the 10 minutes of trying to get through the website to get to the appointments, wah, wah, there's nothing. It, it was, and Charlie Baker's like, oh, I don't know what the problem with these people are. Well, maybe it's because we don't live in West Virginia. I don't know. Bob, before you go away, how hard was I know you're dedicated. I think it's your mother and father-in-law, or did I get it backwards? What it, father it, it, and mother-in-law. It's backwards, but backwards, it, it seems okay. like the same anyway. Where, was there a point you were ready to say, I can't do this anymore, it's too... It's too it's too hard. Oh, or- at, at, listen, 
Absolutely not. I'm grateful that I have those appointments because I, every day when you have to get up and go do something, you wonder, am I going to bring something back to them? I might get yeah. sick, but they might, yeah. they might get a lot worse. And, and then my father is, I mean, my father's, I'm the only thing he has left. He's like, I want to go to the store. I'm like, oh, all right, all right. Well, listen, we'll wear 14 masks and we'll bring the computer with us in case there's an appointment that opens up. Yeah, I don't, I, it's absolutely insane. <laughs> I can't believe you waited all this time to call us. You got to call us again soon, Bob. That was yeah. a great, great first call. I tell you, Congratulations. coal country's looking better and better these days. <laughs> he is, by the way, you know, I hope people know, we've mentioned it, but Bob did it far better than we are. West Virginia's like number two right after Alaska. Yeah. And who explained to us the other day, was it our Kaplan? Has it said one the of the reasons, right, even though they're one of the poorest states in the yeah. country, fourth or fifth poorest, really good he told health. us they've invested in public health. So they were ready for this, as opposed to the vast majority of states, ours apparently included, that was and by uh, the way, not ready. We can't blame that on Donald Trump. We've underfunded, apparently, public health for years yep. and years and yep. years. Yep. And I- I'm hoping that this is a wake-up call, that public health does matter, because um, people are ta- these people that do, do public health talk about they work in 80-hour weeks. They don't have any supplies. They don't have any money. They don't have any this and any that. And that's part of the problem. Renee from Chelsea, thank you for calling. Hi, Renee. Hi. Um, Hi. Well, I called many times the first time I got through. Glad Great. you did. Yeah. Um, so I'm calling because I listened to you last week and people were having such difficulty. But I went on on Tuesday to get an appointment and I got an appointment for Thursday at That's CVS. Great. Good. And I went in. Yeah, I walked in and they said, what time? And they said, OK, stand over there. You'll get a message from us, a text. And I did. And I went right in and I got the uh, vaccine. You know, it's, it, Renee, that's a great, um, uh, obviously, story. A lot of people I've seen complaining. I mean, I already get texts from CVS, and they have my stuff in the pharmacy, so I don't really care. But a lot of people were complaining. They didn't want to have to give their email and establish an account with CVS. But obviously, that didn't bother you. Or maybe you already had one. No, I didn't. Ha- well, I have that thing where you get discounts or whatever. Yep. But, yeah, other than that, no. But then the other thing was this, too. So now I have to get the second one. And I heard more people saying how tough it was. So I went on last night, and I said, let me take a shot. And I got in schedule again. It just went right through. And- Renee, Renee, wait a second. Yeah. Before you, yeah. I was under the impression, first of all, I love hearing a story like this. It lifted my mm-hmm. spirits. But I thought when you get your first shot that – on the scene, on the site, at that moment, they schedule your second shot. Is that not true? That is not true. And you are not the first person to ask me that. And I said, no. I said, they don't have anybody in there to take appointments. They just have people in there to stick the needle in your arm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so you wait 15 minutes. They give you a card that has the date that you have had the first one. Right. And then you have to go, which is funny because I was like, great. I hope it's as easy the second time. Yeah. You have to make your own appointment. Renee, okay. if you, I know you don't need advice from me, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'd buy a lottery ticket if I were you. You, you really had, you did great, not once but twice. So Renee, good luck, and we're calling. really happy for you. <clears throat> you know, we talk. I a lot feel about- like I'm related to her. I mean, I mean, literally, it made me feel so good to hear somebody actually got through without pain. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, uh, Laura Kranz has got a great piece in the Globe talking yeah. about uh, people who ha- have means and brains and expertise and epidemiology and finance and all this kind of stuff are able to set up their own so-called surveillance testing thing. Yeah, they talk I read about, about that. 
uh, this uh, Needham Temple, Beth Shalom, where they're able to test the teachers, and now they're going to start teaching little kids, and they talked about this bunch of parents in Wellesley. A lot of them are medical professionals. They were able to put, put together a program there, and it's similar to what a lot of the colleges have done, like Northeastern, which got all those uh, which got all those tests and wasn't able to use them all because the governor told them they had to stop. Um, but they test their employees there and their stu- students there uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. And they were talking about um, this local 26, you know, which does a lot of... Um, hotel uh, workers, right? Uh, hotel workers, yeah, mm-hmm. and cafeteria workers. And mm-hmm. how because of... Uh, I'm not sure if it's because of the surveillance testing, but that the hotel, the cafeteria workers in the colleges, most of them have not lost their jobs, whereas those in the hotels have been furloughed, and mm-hmm. it's because they don't have the testing um, that a lot of the colleges have had. They spent a lot of money on this, and they've been pretty successful in keeping COVID at bay. Well, you want to know, and I read that Laura Krantz thing about how they basically created the testing program for themselves. themselves. Yeah. I didn't want to tell you this, but since you brought this up, what I've been doing all weekend is I've been doing research on mRNA in my bedroom, <laughs> and I'm hoping by the end of the week to have developed a vaccine for you, me, and the staff oh, on thank you, Jim. Greater Boston and I'm Boston glad I made the Public cut. Radio. It's just, <laughs> you know, I was, Renee, I'm serious. The Renee Cole, I mean, I feel bad because a lot of people hearing probably didn't have that kind of experience, but obviously by definition, somebody's getting the shot, so somebody's got to get through most pe- I don't think I've spoken to anybody who had it as easy as or read about anybody who had it quite as smooth and quick as Renee did twice. But it's 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 very good to hear that somebody had a successful kind of thing. I can't even imagine the stress that you have to go through. You know, hope people. You know what I've heard the most is what, what I think the first Cole mentioned. Uh, Kohler mentioned when you finally hit on a location and you're feeling good and it comes up, no appointments available. And you yeah. go to another one, no appointments available. Or you have available. to do your information all over again yeah, every hard. time you get disqualified. Or you have to go, uh, as Bob from Cambridge was saying, a long way away. There was some woman in Boston who told the Globe she lives in Boston. She's 77, but she's driving to Pittsfield, which is not... Uh, He's going three hours but each direction. Three hours each direction. Twice. Anyway, we're t- we're talking about what, that, exactly three hours of his life lost twice. We're talking about no, what happens. no, no. Excuse me, six hours six plus hours. the wait there. Plus they got to go and come back, right? That's six. the way it works. Anyway, we're talking about what happens when a bumpy vaccine rollout meets a winter storm advisory, and we're talking about just in general how you doing trying to get those vaccines. The conversation continues on eighty nine seven GBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie Egan and Jim Brady. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the ongoing problems plaguing the vaccine rollout from, from breaks in the distribution chain to people struggling to schedule an appointment to getting a vaccine today as a snowstorm will likely result, at least in some cancellations. Again, in the mass vaccination site, day one at Fenway, they're asking people who had appointments in the first half of the day to come an hour early, and if they postpone second appointments... Uh, CIC Health that's coordinating is saying that they will you will get a communication email, whatever, however they communicate with you, to not just postpone you to an indefinite date, but to postpone you theoretically to a specific date. So we want to hear your stories. We love the, well, we like them all because we want to hear what the truth is. But Renee had obviously great good fortune. Uh, she appears to be in the minority. We want to hear from you. 877-301-8970. Maybe you've read about this. If I have, I've forgotten it. 
uh, whether part of the problem here is we have really antiquated systems in the state, because several people have emailed talking about how this is like the unemployment mess when people lost their jobs this year and they were furloughed and they were trying to get um, um, you know the, the money from the and government. we had the antiquated software. Yeah, yeah. a lot of states it, did. In fairness, it, yeah. you know it's an, it's it's kind of depressing when you realize how outdated we are in so many areas. Whether mm-hmm. it's our roads, our bridges, our airports, our computer systems, our public health system. I mean, we do kind of operate, maybe not like a third world country, but like a second world country. And nobody ever wants to spend money in Washington on stuff that's going to help on this kind of thing, you know? Everything is like a, we can't do anything except give money to the military, money to the Pentagon, and tax breaks to billionaires. It seems that that's where our focus is. And it's just, we, I don't know what's happened to us. Philip from Acton, thank you for calling. Hello, Philip. Uh, hey there, Jim Marjorie, our first-time caller here. And thank you. And just had an amazing experience yesterday getting the vaccine for my 85-year-old dad. Great. And, uh, you know, obviously it was a huge pain to, to get it the first go around, had to cancel it and redo it. But what I want to say is a couple of quick points. Uh, the first is a huge shout out to the staff and volunteers at Gillette. I good cannot believe how smoothly everything went. Oh, my God. Oh, they were good. so nice. We were in and out of there in 35 to 40 minutes, and that includes 15 minutes of chill time to make sure, you know, you don't go into anaphylactic shock or something. And everyone there, from the people who greet you at the door, actually, backing up, even the signage getting in there is fantastic. You know, I've never been to Gillette, not much of a football fan or anything. And so I thought, oh, my God, even to find the place is going to be a big pain in the butt. But the, the signage was great. You get to the front door. They say, hey, stay in your car until 10 minutes before your appointment. It says, oh, we're now accepting appointments for, you know, 435 and 436. You walk in and... I can't believe it. It was just so smooth, and we were expecting the worst because of everything we've been hearing. So, Boy, uh, that is... And you, and you even leave with a wristband that says, I got my COVID vaccine at Gillette Stadium. So That's there great. you go. You, you leave with a prize. How did your 85-year-old parent feel afterwards? You know, he was psyched. Uh, he was very pleased. I mean, he would not have been able to do this alone. Yeah. So uh, my brother and I, we were trying to get an appointment for literally days and days, and it was the most frustrating thing, and don't need to go into that. You all know that. And, you know, when Charlie Baker says, oh, just hit the refresh key and type in all your information again and go through the, the five or six pages of web pages to get to the, you know, the finding out you have no appointments available, um, you know, it's just ridiculous. However, I do have a huge tip that worked for me the day what? before I got the vaccine. We rescheduled that. Is I think, a, a game changer. So... Instead of like hitting refresh at the beginning where you literally put in your name and all your insurance ID and answer all the questionnaire, if you go to the last page, which will actually list the appointment, you'll say no appointments here, no appointments there, zero appointments. If you click and refresh that page, the very last page, eventually a cancellation will pop up. And so uh, I did that. I hopped on it and got it within seconds. Philip, another wow. great story, another great story, and thanks for your relentlessness and sticking to it. Philip, thank well, you for the call. Here, we are hearing good things about when you actually get to Gillette, when you actually get to Fenway, uh, things are going uh, yep. reasonably well, so um, that's really encouraging news. Joe from Quincy. Well, wait, Hi, before Joe. you take Joe from Quincy, yes. his father is 85, right? right? What if his 85-year-old father didn't have Philip? Yeah. Well, what is he? I mean, if Philip just said his father couldn't have done it alone, what is his father 
do? What is the 85-year-old who doesn't have an adult child or a social worker or a senior center to help? What does that person do? Well, I think that's do? a little bit more difficult. I mean, lots of people at 85 are not driving that much or driving that well. Do they want to drive to Gillette and worry about? But as, as he was saying, he gets to sit in his car until right before the appointment, yeah. and somebody else said that the concourse is heated. <clears throat> I didn't think they could do that. I guess they can. But he had his son, was my point. He, <laughs> he had, had his, his son grown him. son. Yeah. Getting the, he said he and his brother spent days mm-hmm. trying to get the appointment. Then they and drove you know what else there. People are complaining about that if you're like a eighty-something husband and wife, that people are having real problems getting the husband and wife on the same day. Same thing. So they're having to go twice, oh which is which is really um, difficult. You know, that's one of why the, I think it's better to be able to go eventually when they're all jacked up at the uh, to the CVS or the Walgreens where you. Well, kind of there's also another the thing. Uh, the lead researcher at Beth Israel on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine right. is going to be with me on television tonight. One of the things I want to ask him is, when Johnson & Johnson comes out, want it. we know it lasts longer, uh, uh, it lasts longer, and meaning once it's opened, I, I believe, or it can at least be refrigerated longer, and normal refrigeration rather than... Uh, uh, rather than you know these extreme cold temperatures, does that mean that at more mundane facilities, your doctor, if you have a primary care know. physician, but don't or that kind of thing, rather the big than problem what? for Johnson and Johnson is that it's what is it seventy um, percent? No, as a matter of fact, 60s? it's fabulous. Read more. It is. Fa- it is. Oh yes, that is is fabulous. Uh, the the their efficacy. I can't believe I use this word. On preventing serious disease, even in South Africa, where they tested right. it, is uh, in the 85-plus range. The 70% thing you're talking about, uh-huh. is, there are two things about it. And again, we'll ask Dr. Gerger and Barnett about it. One, 70% is still really good, by the way. Most flu vaccines are like 50 and that sort of thing. Number two, uh, uh, the 70% relates to getting symptoms it doesn't relate to ex- serious illness, which, again, is 85%. And third, it's in a different environment with a far more contagious era than when the Modernas and the and the Pfizers were tested. So actually, I had the same impression you had, the sev- that 70% was far worse. In fact, it is terrific. It's not so as shouldn't terrific. Be upset, shouldn't be upset about the Johnson & Johnson? Well, also, it's a single dose. So in any case, Joe, I'm sorry I held you up. Joe and Quincy, hi. That's quite all right. I hope you're both doing well today. We are, yep. Um, I, I was fortunate in that I was able to find uh, appointments for my in-laws at uh, Walgreens, actually, in uh, Boston for this afternoon, Great. only because uh, they were Walgreens was kind of flying under the radar for a day or so on Thursday when they rolled this out. But my uh, question, maybe you can find out an answer to this, Um I don't understand why we're not using the BCEC, the convention center, as our massive uh, Boston area uh, vaccination site. Uh, the thing that disturbs me about Fenway and Reggie Lewis is there's basically no parking there. Yeah. And um, the BCEC has a huge parking lot That's in the back. Yeah. I believe that it's dormant. I don't think they have any real, um, there's no conventions going on I'm right sure now. sure not, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, it's great at Fenway. I imagine Wally greets you at the door, and uh, maybe you can buy a hot dog afterwards. But it's still out in the freezing cold. They're doing it by the concession stands, I believe, underneath. No, it's uh, actually in, the, well, it's, they, 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 from what I've read, uh, they're in the concourses and they're heaters. So uh, they're 
their position is that people will stay relatively warm. They're not out in the cold like on York. Well, it's not called Yawkey Way, Jersey Street or whatever the hell it's called anymore. But you make a wonderful point. That seems to be a fabulous location. I don't know why, and we will try to ask the appropriate people, Joe. So keep listening. That's actually a pretty good site, Marjorie, don't you think? Thank you, Joe, for your call. The, the huge convention center in South Boston? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's huge, and it does have a lot of parking. That's a great point. Julianne and Rosendale, thank you for calling. You only have 45 seconds, Julianne. Sorry. Great. I'll get it out. So Great. first of all, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and I love you guys. I feel like your family, so thank, thank you. you for the last oh, four thank years you. especially. Thanks. Um, I'm grateful because this morning I got my vaccine at Fenway Park. Good for and you. And I just want a huge uh, shout-out to the crew there. CIC and Cataldo did an awesome job. It was well-organized. It was calm, it was efficient, it went smoothly, and um, I just wanted to call and give you some good news about Fenway. I got We're my really glad you did. This morning yep. And went right on. Congratulations, good. it's great. You can hear it in Juliana's voice. That is great. That is really, really great to it's wonderful, hear. It's wonderful, Jim. That means there's hope for us all. Hope for us all here. Well, okay. I mean, it is good news amidst the bad that uh, some of the stuff's running really efficiently. It's very exciting. No, I think the bottom line here is you're able to spend hours on the website at 3 o'clock in the morning. Once you get to Fenway or Gillette, things will be good. Not as good as if you had close parking, but, you know, we, maybe we're working on that. Anyway, coming up, our TV authority, Bob Thompson, joins us to preview a Super Bowl Sunday unlike any in television history, that's for sure. We're going to talk with Bob Thompson up next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, from the small screen to the silver screen with stage performances along the way. Cicely Tyson was a barrier breaker who brought previously unseen portrayals of black life to life. Joining us online to remember her varied career and performances is Bob Thompson. Bob's the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and popular culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse. Hello there, Bob Thompson. Hello. Yes, uh, the career of Cicely Tyson definitely gets my hands down best for this uh, this week. Yeah, she was. Well, tell us why was she? Uh, what was she been talking about when he was saying previous unseen portraits of black life to life and barrier breaker, et cetera? What what was that about? Well, let's first talk about a very early show, which is really difficult to see. There's a couple of episodes circulating on YouTube, but it's very hard to see. A program called East Side, West Side, Mm -hmm. shot in New York uh, in the 1963-64 television uh, season. So this is before the passage of the Civil Rights uh, uh, Act. And I should point out, two years before... I Spy, where Bill Cosby normally gets credit for being the first black actor to be in a starring in a uh, dramatic series, mm-hmm. not comic or musical, but a dramatic series. And Cicely Tyson co-stars with none other than George C. Scott for one season in East Side, West Side, two years before I Spy, in 1963. She wore her hair in a natural hairstyle. She was a very dignified uh, partner of George C. Scott's character. They were social workers um, in that show. And they did some extraordinary episodes in that very short-lived series, uh, including one that had James Earl Jones' first appearance on uh, on television, I think first screen appearance. 
So right, right from there, she was uh, really an important, groundbreaking pioneer uh, and great actor, I might point out, on television. But she didn't stop, uh, stop there. She was still working. She played uh, really great roles on House of Cards, believe it or not. On she How did? to Get Away with Murder, where she chewed up uh, uh, the scenery. And in between that, of course, uh, on Roots, she opens that groundbreaking uh, show, giving birth to Kunta Kinte in the beginning of that uh, series. Uh, in the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, she plays a 110-year-old uh, ex-slave. Um, and uh, Cicely Tyson, by the way, was 96. She almost made it to Miss Jane Pittman's uh, age. And that, of course, had that famous uh, scene at the end, excruciatingly, beautifully long as she walks up and drinks to a pre- drinks from a previously uh, segregated uh, drinking fountain. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, confused. He, he thought Miss Jane Pittman was actually a real person after that uh, TV show, had TV movie had played. Uh, and, of course, lots of other stuff in between. Sounder, for whom she was no, uh, nominated for an Oscar. She won three Emmys. A long, distinguished career. You know, two things. One, I watched Sounder this weekend, which I probably haven't seen in decades, and it was she and Paul Winfield. It was just brilliant. But, you know, I didn't realize the East Side, West Side thing. If she preceded uh, uh, Bill Cosby as a lead, why does Cosby get the credit for being the first black actor to be a lead in a drama series on TV? Well, that's a good question, because that's not true. They were both co-stars, of course. Cosby co-starred with Bill Culp, and uh, uh, Cicely Tyson co-starred with George C. Scott. Uh, I mean, maybe it's because I Spy was a hit, and East Side, West Side was not. Uh, maybe it's because Bill Cosby was a man, and Cicely exactly. Tyson was a woman. But for exactly. You it hit is. it, Bob Thompson. <laughs> it was also like a cop detective show, right? I remember my father being so excited about I Spy. I don't think he ever heard of Cicely Tyson, but, you know, Bill Cosby. Right. I Spy was a uh, – and that show was a really good show, too. It was a international intrigue. They were uh, uh, undercover spies. It was shot all over the world, very expensive uh, program. Um, And Cosby won a couple of Emmys for it. It got a lot of of attention. But East Side, West Side – and, you know, even though it only went a single season – it had a 22 share back then. Uh, and what's extraordinary wow. is in 1963-64, you could get a 22 share, meaning 22% of the entire television audience watching TV was watching that show. And the executives would go, eh, we could do better than that, and they canceled it. <laughs> a 22 share today would almost certainly put you at the very top of the heap and would be a massive hit by today's standards. So I hate to stay with death, uh, but another notable uh, actress who's been around for a really long time, too, Cloris Leachman, uh, died this, uh, this week. That's right. And uh, again, another kind of mammoth force. Of course, we all remember her as Phyllis on yes. uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And later she had a less successful spinoff of Phyllis called Phyllis. Um, and of the four really powerful, funny women characters on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Mary, Rhoda, Phyllis, and Sue Ann, the oldest one of that bunch, uh, Sue Ann, played by Betty White, is the only one still, still surviving. Um, but not only did she play, and she's, I think she's got to be the best third banana 
in television <laughs> history. Rhoda, of course, was the second banana to, uh, to marry. But Phyllis played this kind of third wheel, perpetually envious of the relationship that Rhoda uh, and Mary had. And she played that right up to the final episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, she, of course, had already, as had Rhoda, spun off to her own series. But the two of them came back for the final episode. And there's one scene in which the three of them play together. And Phyllis, just with these withering looks at Rhoda, she is so, uh, Phyllis is so jealous of her relationship with Mary, and she doesn't like the fact that Rhoda and her are closer. You could watch that little, I don't know, three-minute scene with the sound off and want to give uh, Cloris Leachman an Emmy just for the, what she did with her face. Did you mention that she won uh, 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 an Oscar? Did you say this for her last picture show? Oh, oh yeah. One right. of my We're favorite what? movies oh, ever. Peter Bogdanovich is just spectacular. The and... last picture show, 1971. So no. we're, what, four minutes into a discussion of Cloris Leachman. And, oh, yeah, right. She also won an Oscar. <laughs> you know, before... you mentioned the three movies she did with Mel Brooks. Where oh, she of course. Was, like, born to, uh, uh, to, for her to uh, pair up with, with Mel Brooks. So, uh, yeah, another really, really powerful force in uh, American entertainment. You know, I failed. We had sound from Cicely Tyson. Yeah, and even though I, we, I, I don't want to miss hearing her voice. She told Oprah that this was her favorite moment. She was playing the mother of Annalise Keating and How to Get Away with Murder. In this scene, Tyson is combing out Annalise's hair, describing how her childhood house burned down. Here it is. And one night, I fell asleep on the couch, drunk as a skunk, that cigarette hanging out of his mouth. I got you and your brothers and sisters out of bed, and we went over to Aunt Mabel to sleep. And that night, that house that I loved so much burnt to the ground. And your Uncle Clyde burnt right with it. Oh, I know how, how you've been torturing yourself about what went on here, baby. Maybe you did something real bad, I don't know, and don't much care if you did. I know if you did, you had your reason. Because sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You know, I never saw that show. I never saw that scene. And even that little clip out of context is really... Well, I'm glad you brought uh, that back up. Uh, by the way, she was in her 90s when she did that. Uh, wow. Uh, scene, and, and, and it was just extraordinarily uh, powerful. Uh, also, uh, before we get off Cicely Tyson, she was given the uh, Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2016. And just for an interesting little side note, Cicely Tyson guest stars in the very first episode of None Other Than I Spy in 19. Oh, really? Oh, gosh. Wow. Oh, well, let's talk about this uh, this new thing on HBO. This the little things. Denzel Washington and uh, um, Malik. What's Malik's first name? Rami Malik. Rami Malik. Notable in that I thing. think it's the first of. We've talked before about how Warner Brothers is going to simultaneously release its entire 2021 lineup of movies both in theaters and at the same time on HBO Max. And this was the, the first, of, first of those. Starring three Oscar winners, Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. Uh, so a pretty big lineup of uh, a pretty, pretty impressive cast. It's not uh, the greatest movie I've ever seen. It's a perfect example of how this is a film that you're happy to watch at home 
on HBO Max, I'm not sure it would be something you would necessarily be happy to have gone out and paid a ticket for and yeah. uh, all of that in the uh, uh, theaters. Um, uh, and, of course, we're going to get a lot more from Warner Brothers uh, this year on HBO Max. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah coming up uh, the 12th of this, this month. Um, the Matrix 4. Uh, what else? Dune. Um, and, of course, I know Jim is looking forward to Godzilla versus Kong. Um, I'm looking forward to the new Space Jam and Tom and Jerry. Uh, so a big you know, risk for Warner Brothers in this transition era where we're going to watch movies on a TV or a computer screen, not only old ones or pretty recent ones, but ones that are that very day being released in the theaters. You know, one quick thing about the the little things. I was going to watch this last night, and I googled the reviews, and they were universally horrible, uh, (laughs) except for one. And I don't want to impugn the integrity of anybody, so I want to be careful. Oh, yeah. The one good review, or sort of good review, was the New York Times. Now, why is that? It was Tony Scott, A.O. Scott. Why mm-hmm. was that significant? Because remember know. we talked about a month or two ago when Tony uh, A.O. Scott and his colleague rated the greatest actors of the 21st century mm-hmm. so far. They didn't include Meryl Streep. Number one, both critics, maybe it was three critics, was Denzel Washington. And I sort of felt like he felt, I have to say something good about this. Because oh, okay. I just said <laughs> he was the greatest talk. actor of the 21st right. century. So, well, in any case. I, I would not call this a terrible movie. You're right. It got pretty bad reviews uh, across the board. Um, it, it's, it's not a terrible movie. It's a perfectly competent film. Um, but it is nothing to get really excited about. And you know how some films, the day after, and then the day after that, you mm. keep thinking about it. You keep kind of going back to portions of it. I, I didn't find that in the case of this. I watched it when it was released on Friday uh, on HBO Max, just about the first minute they uh, released it, and this is, what, Monday, and I haven't thought about it since. Well, I think I'm going to be thinking about Resident Alien for months myself. So here is from the pilot episode of Resident Alien. Here the alien who has accidentally crash-landed on Earth. He explains his predicament. Listen up. Spring. The birds are singing, the flowers are blooming, the sun warms the Earth. Somewhere. Not here. It's 30 degrees out. It snowed nine feet last winter, and four frozen sodas just exploded in my truck. Welcome to Patience, Colorado. I am in the middle of nowhere. A tiny town three hours from the nearest city on roads that are impassable half the year. Nobody in their right mind would live in a place like this. Unless they have something to hide. Actually, that's a great that clip. Great. It does. What's it, what's it about, Bob? Okay, uh, and of course it takes place in Patience, Colorado, yeah. which I have to think is just down the road a piece from South Park. But <laughs> they describe it. This is sci-fi. We don't talk a lot about television shows on the sci-fi channel. I didn't know there but was I think a this channel. one is worth mentioning. They describe it as the science fiction murder mystery Dr. Dramedy Earth Needs Now. And it is a bizarre melange of comedy, which you could hear in that uh, thing. Pretty intense drama. Uh, This guy, as you pointed out, is accidentally crashed on Earth. But he's accidentally crashed on Earth with an ultimate destruction device, which he now has to go find at the crash site so he can fulfill his duty uh, coming to Earth in the first place, which is to destroy the planet. So that's his goal. 
in the meantime, he has had to take on a human form, which almost everybody sees as human, but a little boy sees him still as an alien. That's a problem. Um, and <laughs> he takes on the form of this doctor who is living in a cabin in the middle of nowhere under all this seven feet of snow and uh, uh, kills the doctor in the process of taking on his, his role. And therefore, he then has to operate as kind of the town doctor in this place, sort of like Northern Exposure uh, was. So it becomes kind of this doctor show, but he learns how to speak English watching episodes of Law and Order. So he also becomes really into the investigation of crime, and it just so happens that there has been a murder in the town of Patience, Colorado, which he is now working on. That sounds like an absolute and total mess, but it all comes together in a really fun amusing kind of way. I don't think this is going to win a Peabody Award. I don't think it's going to be given a Presidential Medal of Freedom. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and that whole what Earth needs now, I suppose, is a reference to that it's an escapist little oddment. It sound, actually, it sound, I'm not, that's not my kind of deal, but it sounds pretty exciting what is my kind of deal i hope i am dying to see i actually we watched are, it oh you did we are the yeah. brooklyn saints yeah well why don't we get your review before we get bob's you're the uh, amateur and let's get the professional what do you think of it well you know i i thought it was terrific talking about uh these are mostly uh, uh black kids living in brooklyn and they comes from tough neighborhoods and the coaches are tough guys who have tough lives tough lives so it's very inspirational on the other hand i couldn't help thinking uh, you know, where they got these seven-year-olds playing Pop Warner, banging their heads into each other. <laughs> they heard about the concussion problems in Pop Warner football. But I, I thought it was what I saw. When I saw the first two ones. It, it's, it's really it's heartwarming, Bob. Heartwarming, right? What'd you think, Bob? It is, and you are right. There is a kid that gets uh, bopped on the head at one point, and uh, he says, you always get hit in football. That's what the game's about. Yeah. Um, this is coming from a 10-year-old. So yeah, there always is in the background this idea. We were complaining about the NFL playing a game on Nickelodeon, and now we see an entire uh, four-part series sort of celebrating these young kids, and they're 7- to 13-year-olds uh, playing football. But you kind of forget that in the you do as this plays out. It's about three hours long over four parts, and it really is about and it keeps emphasizing the notion that football is a gateway to something else, yep. to being respectful, to having fun, uh, to not having to think about the past is one of the things that they talk about, which I thought was uh, kind of interesting and uh, poignant. And it really is about what seems to be this very healthy successful community building uh, operation and it uh, is kind of a prequel to the Super Bowl um, it's it, it, I guess it made me feel better about football by the way Brian Grazer and uh, Ron Howard are the executive producers oh, wow. of this, so it's yeah. got a pretty good pedigree as well and it's very well done and they're and they're um, they're they're real people Aren't they? Aren't these? Are these real people? Oh, oh, yeah. This is yeah. definitely. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, they're real people, and and, uh, and you it, see, it's all about you know sc- 
school first, yep. uh, football second. The idea and a constant emphasis that they want to, uh, you know, they're doing this with these kids not as a gateway to the NFL, which they point out is very unlikely. We get a statistic from somebody about the millions of kids that play football in high school versus the uh, small number that actually play uh, end up in playing it in college versus the even smaller number that end up playing it in uh, in the NFL. But the idea that football could be a way to get them yep. scholarships to get to college, uh, so it's a it's a different sort of aspirational way of presenting this sport than we normally normally see. By the way, these inspirational sports things have really become a genre unto themselves. Netflix itself did Last Chance U. We've talked about that before. Uh, Cheer, which we didn't talk about. Uh, HBO did The Cost of Winning, The Texas Six on CBS All Access. How about Friday Night Lights, one of the greatest ever, right? What's that? Wasn't Friday, Friday Night, Night Lights one of the greats? Lights, which was a book, and then it was a movie, and then it was a great TV, great. Uh, TV show. So this kind of thing is generically uh, been territory that's been trodden before. But uh, it, it's three hours long. It's very concise. Uh, and and I, I really liked it. I will say this, it, and this is maybe deliberate uh, to keep it away from being the you know, it's all about winning kind of thing. They're technically playing this game, and they're supposed to be getting to this playoff in Florida and all of that, but they make it very unclear as to actually who they're playing and what's at stake and all of that. The the whole competition part of it is so underplayed as to make it almost uh, almost confusing. Let's play a little sound from this. Uh, we are the Brooklyn Saints. In the scene, two kids, football players, are visiting Christ the King High School. Uh, here, the varsity football coach, Rogers, is giving them an unorthodox pep talk as he writes football statistics on a whiteboard. There are one million high school football players in the United States. 70,000 college football players. That's it. Only 2,000 in the NFL making all those millions to play a kid's game. Myself, I don't care about football because in football, you are one hit from never playing again. You can tear your knee. You can tear your Achilles. Concussion! When you never play again, you're not guaranteed nothing, but you are guaranteed this. What does that say, gentlemen? Say it again. Say it louder. You are guaranteed your education. Use football. Don't let it use you. That's a pretty good little clip yeah. there. I, I guess you're guaranteed. This is a documentary. That's not a scripted speech. Yeah. That sounds right. like something right out of the third act Script. of a football movie. Well, right. the, co- the, the coaches are such a big deal because some of these kids don't have dads and all that kind of stuff. But, of course, you're not guaranteed your education if you hurt your Achilles or tear your knee or get a concussion. So, Well, <laughs> yeah, that whole thing about it guaranteeing your education. Yeah, I'm not maybe a sure little much. The whole thing. Uh, so also, what should we watch? Almost in a Frederick Wiseman style. There are, there are kids talking and coaches that do talk to the camera, so we do get some of those breakout, uh, them directly addressing the camera, which Wiseman doesn't do. But otherwise, it's pretty much the verite, fly-on-the-wall kind of style. So what should we watch this week, Bob? Uh, we, we, I guess we have to say the Super Bowl. That's the biggest <laughs> television event of the year, unquestionably, every mm-hmm. single year. It will, in spite of the weird season, we'll probably still have the biggest audience. Um, of the entire year, so uh, that's the what to watch. But there's a bonus. 
this time around. What's, What's that? that? The pregame is going to cl- include, and as I say this, remember that this is the Super Bowl, uh, Budweiser Clydesdale's uh, football game, and it's going to uh, open in the pregame with a brand new poem. By none oh. other than our friend oh, Amanda right. Gorman. Yes, that's right. That's fantastic. I read that. That's great. Yeah, she's also got a modeling contract out of this whole deal too. Oh, I tell she's you, she's got a modeling contract, a book, uh, three yeah. book deal. Yeah. Uh, each one of them are going to have an original printing of a million, which is yeah, it's unbelievable. Know, she's had a good couple of weeks. I guess. <laughs> Pre-game show starting tomorrow, probably. So we got to get ready. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, you're probably right about that. Hey, Bob. Thanks. We'll talk Thank to you, you next much, week. Thank you very much, Bob Thompson. Be well. You too. See you later. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of television and popular culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Coming up, a military coup in Myanmar and Putin suppresses massive protests in Russia. That and more next with GBH News Analyst Charlie Sennett. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. Black and Latinos in Boston make up a disproportionate share of COVID-19 cases in the city, and yet they're lagging far behind their white peers in vaccines. This is causing deja vu for Boston residents of color who've experienced how health and financial crises through the years linger longer in their communities. Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price will join us to discuss. If federal, state, and local governments continue vaccine distribution at current rates, it'll take until the summer of 2022 to get everyone in the United States vaccinated. While the Biden administration has vowed to ramp up distribution, a lot of unknowns remain. We'll be joined by Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett to take our questions and yours about all things COVID-19. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Marjorie Egan, you're listening to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. You know, I was just looking at the weather report and it said as much as a foot in Cambridge and Boston, Brooklyn, yep. etc. So you combine that with the coronavirus, I am estimating I'll be out of the house by July. That's <laughs> that. Maybe I'm off by a week, <laughs> but I think that's pretty much my, my timetable. So even though uh, Alexei Navalny was poisoned in an assassination attempt carried out by a Kremlin agent, Navalny is the one treated like a criminal and thrown into jail when he returns to Russia. As coordinated protests demanding his freedom grip the region, could Putin be losing his grip on Russia? Join us online to talk about this, how Brexit is affecting vaccine distributions, Myanmar's military coup, other global headlines is Charlie Senate. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH, also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, good to talk to you. Hi. Hey, hey Jim. Hi, Marjorie. The good hey. news is we don't have to shovel today, right? We just not yet it. we don't. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. Oh, that's, so oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a fine point. Yes. That is a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. If you don't have to go somewhere tomorrow morning, too, how happy are you, right? You don't have to get out there with right. the head heavy snow. But anyway, Charlie, before we get back to, to, to Russia and Myanmar, 
Um, what is going on? We've been talking a lot about vaccines, obviously, today in the last few days. What's going on with getting vaccines into Britain via Northern Ireland in the post-Brexit world? I know there's been kind of a brouhaha. Yeah, uh, quickly, I guess. I mean, the EU just basically took a U-turn. They said that they were going to reverse this attempt they had tried to get underway to restrict vaccines that would go into Britain via Northern Ireland. Because remember, there's, there's that issue of the border between Northern mm. Ireland, which is part of the UK, and Ireland, which is now part of the EU since Brexit. How do you deal with that border? You know, part of the Good Friday Agreement with you know, bringing... Uh, some resolution to the troubles after all those years of violence. The idea was that there's this beautiful peace agreement in place which says there will be no hard border. So now they've had to basically look at how they're going to navigate that. They've had to withdraw that idea of the EU from just um, trying to distribute via Northern Ireland. They, they, they are going to have to be really careful. That border is going to be the Achilles heel of Brexit. And we're, going to, we're seeing that sort of playing out. In brief, though, those... Those who favor Brexit and who said, we think we can handle the distribution of the vaccine better than the EU are proving themselves right in some cases. The EU has been slow in getting the vaccine out. They haven't handled it too well. So there is a sort of self-satisfied, we told you so, from the Brexiteer point of view as they watch this clumsy rollout of the EU vaccines. Well, you know, my understanding is the reason for that is AstraZeneca is not meeting its goals, at least its commitments to the EU. And from what I read this morning, uh, the UK signed the contract with AstraZeneca three weeks before the EU did, uh, you know, further uh, making clear your point that the EU is a little slow off the mark. And boy, do we know Mm -hmm. slow off the mark in the United States. So, I mean, it's, you know, this, I know this is not a new topic, this international, and I mean international uh, competition is just so it's just the beginning it is really just this, the beginning this nationalism around the vaccine is going to really rear its ugly head you know this this idea that like what canada now has stored uh, enough vaccines for every canadian to be vaccinated five times A country the size of nigeria has literally no vaccines yet this inequity and this sense of nationalism and the yeah. understandable need, right? Countries are going to look out for themselves. That, 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 that is not necessarily something that, that you can look down on. A country needs to do that. But how are we going to think about equity in health? How are we going to think about this down the road? Huge question. Well, also, I mean, to further that thought, the, the places that are going to be last in line with the fewest doses are the poorer nations who need more integration in the world economy. And they're going to have less integration because it's going to be seen as if, as, as correctly, that it's not safe to have uh, 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 ongoing back and forth from those countries to ours, for example, because their, uh, uh, their vaccination level is so low through no fault of their own, except poverty. I mean, it's just, it is really yeah, it is, a it's harsh huge. show. And Jim, even, even more globally, we will never be done with this pandemic until the whole world is vaccinated. Absolutely so we, right. ha- we are in it right. to win it together as a world. It's one of the biggest messages of the pandemic is we are all connected. And so, yeah, this is going to be something that we're going to keep an eye on. We're talking to Charlie so- Senate. 
Charlie, let's get back to uh, Russia. These anti-Putin protests, uh, as uh, these news stories report, seem to be uniting people from all sides of the Russian uh, political uh, groups, from the nationalists to the so-called liberal intelligentsia to the uh, people that uh, the Stalinists who want to go back to you know the, what how things used to be. So, um, what's going on? Well. Navalny is increasingly an opposition figure who is, who is proving himself a real force to be reckoned with, right? He is creating um, his own media empire of sorts where he's got YouTube channels that are just extraordinary in their reach. So he's, he's able to have his supporters get his message out, even though Putin is clearly not only putting him in prison, really cracking down on any supporters. Um, the, the crackdowns were really brutal. I don't know if you saw footage of the demonstration oh, yeah. Yeah. in the country. But this is Putin showing uh, he's nervous. And I think it's, um, it's going to be a real challenge to Putin. But I mean, as someone who I am not a Russia expert, but I don't, I don't see that Putin won't have ultimately the authority to deploy his military at his will and eventually run this opposition movement uh, either to ground or to just wear them down. And that is what they seem to be doing in these really tense demonstrations where the, uh, you know, the protesters really had their heads cracked and there was really a tough, tough uh, expression of force from the police state that Putin runs. You know, uh, virtually everybody in America, depending on what side of the political spectrum you are, is doing a side by side comparison of how Trump handled X and how Biden is handling X. But mm-hmm. th- when I read the summary or the readout or whatever the hell you call it of Biden's first conversation with Putin the other day, in which Biden brought up human rights and Navalny in particular, which obviously never would have been done by uh, Donald Trump. He brought up election interference, uh, which obviously would never have been done by uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, it's, 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 I have no idea what the consequence is going to be, but a return to the real world in terms of what Russia is and what our relationship with Russia should be is really stark, to say uh, the least, under uh, a guy that's been president just for a couple of weeks. Yeah, this is one thing. I don't know. Maybe, can you help me understand this? No. I hear a lot of people <laughs> on the far, <laughs> you know, sort of farthest fringes of the right wing slamming um, socialism, slamming any, you know, one who would dare criticize Trump as a socialist or anyone who would introduce um, any legislation that could be seen as using the government to try to heal a lot of the problems we're yeah. facing. Socialism. And yet, here's Trump as this, uh, you know, to borrow the Tony Blair metaphor, the poodle of Putin. This, this is someone who Putin so clearly brought along and, and clearly reached out mm-hmm. to, and Trump so took the bait. How is that that the people don't see? <laughs> that you had Trump flirting with the former head of the KGB uh, more than any president of the United States ever has or ever will, I would hope. And you know what, so you know, know, I've never been what, able to square all well, that. Well, I'm so glad you said you've never been able to square it, because I think it is the single greatest mystery from the four years of Trump. I mean, some people uh, ascribe it purely to the fact that he likes tough dictator guys because he wanted to be one of them. And maybe that's true. I don't buy that. But, you know, everybody, and I'm sure Charlie, and I know Marjorie on the show, you and I, 
everybody I've spoken to who actually does understand this, the political reality, no one has. I had John Brennan, former head of the CIA, who just wrote a book. You think if he doesn't know, nobody knows. I said, so why was Trump's, this is a couple of weeks ago, why was Trump so beholden to Putin? And he gave, I don't know what, he wasn't a specific answer. I said, I guess what I should have asked is, do you know why and just aren't able to say it? And he said, no, I don't. I don't know why. So it, it, it's amazing that somebody could be so willing to bow at the altar of a, a brutal dictator like this, and nobody has an explan- a plausible explanation of the reason why. Charlie, I know you just said you're well, not an expert. so much of this will come out, I hope. I mean, I, I hope really too. do hope in the, in the months ahead. Ukraine's already starting talking about Giuliani oh, yeah, right. uh, in, a new, in a new way. They've had a kind of no-comment approach, and now they're going to open up. Mm-hmm. You have people like, you know, Kurt Volker, remember him? And, sure. and this, this idea that these guys are going to, they're around. They're going to come forward. They are going to tell us what really happened behind, behind the scenes here in ways that it'll take years but we will get there. And Jim, a couple of years from now, we'll be talking about how we finally do understand. This. Well, I hope we are. Let I me just ask you one question about this, Charlie. I know you said you're not a Russia expert, but um, you know they they did nearly manage to poison this Navalny uh, guy over mm-hmm. there, Alexei Navalny, and I, I believe they had detained his wife. I'm not sure if she's out or not. But I mean, is he going to be killed in prison? Well, I don't know. I, I honestly don't. I don't know. I mean, certainly, he, there's no sense he's coming out anytime soon. You know, his. If you know about his this Navalny Live, which is his YouTube channel, th- just to give you a sense of its power, you know, he is um, putting out, you know, reports. This is this is journalism about about corruption in Russia, showing Putin's palace, which Putin claims it's not his palace, but it's this opulent place while the Russian people suffer more and more economically. They're, they're not seeing anywhere near the growth they've seen in previous years. There's a real, you know, a really tough time there as there is around the world, but it's hitting Russians hard. The sanctions hit them hard. There's a sense of a bleak economy, and here is Putin in all this grandeur. This undercuts Putin's grip on the country, and they know yeah. a million views on that on that YouTube channel, I think is the number. And if you go and you want to see it, it's just there and they can't stop it. They're never going to be able to stop Navalny's movement of those who are tired of the corruption and tired of the injustices and who are just going to keep the pressure on. And so I fear he will be a pawn in that game. His movement may go on, but it's awfully hard to see when he would get out. I don't know the answer to your question about his wife, but I'll check on I'll check on that. So, Charlie, while you say you don't have great expertise in terms of Russia, I know you and your organization have great uh, uh, expertise when it comes to Myanmar. And if you could do explain to me, this is another one I don't quite understand. Yep. From Nobel Peace Prize, this is Su Chi we're talking about Nobel Peace mm-hmm. Prize to leader defending military excess, to now victim of a military coup. Can you explain the whole continuum? Mm. I will do my best. Myanmar is one of the most complex and layered countries in the world with so many different ethnic makeups and so many different expressions of its culture. It's really hard to understand. But but almost 10 years ago now, I can't believe it, but we did a really deep project there just as 
Aung San Suu Kyi was coming uh, out of house arrest uh, after the military had placed her there and saw her as a great challenge to their authority. We were part of the first opening up of democracy and it was unfolding there. It's a series called A Burmese Journey. We did this in partnership with something called the Open Hands Initiative, and we really spent time there. We worked with Burmese journalists, we worked with young American journalists, and what I learned was they were the Burmese journalists we work with were already starting to question Aung San Suu Kyi, who is this heroic figure, right? She is beloved there, but they were starting to see that she was willing to um, be less than challenging to the military. And the questions were just starting to surface around the Rohingya. This is the Muslim mm -hmm. minority population inside of Myanmar. And Aung San Suu Kyi has rightly been very strongly criticized for failing to get in the military's way as they really carried out what some would call a genocide against the Rohingya. You know, systematic rape, killing, um, destruction of villages, and she was just not speaking out against it. And many saw that, that silence as complicity, and she has been roundly criticized for it. So the question is, why did she do that? How did she go from this uh, Nelson Mandela-like figure yeah. to someone who is just seen now as a politician? And the answer is, I think she was trying to hold her country together. She was trying to really say, we're going to make a step toward democracy, but we're going to have to do it in a slow uh, slow-paced way and she tried to bring the military along with her she she really I think did a lot of effort toward reconciliation with the military and in the end of the day it looks like it didn't work she's now under house arrest I believe the latest reports I'm pretty sure are still that she is still in jail um, people woke up in Myanmar this morning to a scene that for the older people of that population is very familiar. The military in the streets, checkpoints, and they're talking about a year-long state of emergency. This is, a, this is a coup. This is a military coup. And my, my, my strongest image, Jim, that I hope gives you a sense of her role, I went into the parliament uh, in Nyapadao, in the capital, very bizarre modern capital of Myanmar and there you see all the seats of parliament and you know the majority of those seats are the green military uniforms of the military and they're located in the opposition corner like all alone in, in her unbelievable beautiful um, clothing right she's so famous for these amazing mm -hmm. clothes that express so much color and life and the culture of Myanmar standing out against the drab green of the military was Aung San Suu Kyi sitting in the opposition seat surrounded by the military and we're just seeing that play out now that this was an untenable um, pace too torturous too slow too accommodating and it looks like the military has now turned on her and that's where we are. Well, you know what I wondered, too? I mean, how long was she detained before? Like 10 or 15 years? It was a long time, right? Yeah, yeah, more I than mean, a I, decade. And, you yeah. know, she, she lived in, under house arrest. She went through hell, and she rose above it. And now I don't know where this goes. I, well, you do wonder whether part know. of it might be, I mean, um, you know, you think of the cowardice of politicians in the United States who can't seem to stand up for anything on, on certain sides. And this woman was in detention for 10 to 15 years. I don't know. And, and, and Myanmar, as you say, with this, with this very scary situation, maybe she 
couldn't do it anymore. I don't know. I just wondered yeah, about I mean, that. I think it's there's there is I think it's a fair question, Marjorie. There is the human side of this that how long can you fight? Like how long can you try to fight? But I think it's also fair to say that you know, she took the steps she took toward democratic change may have been too modest. Yeah. Um, she tried to chip away at the military's control. And, it, and the strategy, I think, didn't work. And the military has now come surging back. And the commander-in-chief of the military is going to run. And this is, this is politics. And her very slow, patient strategy, it's very much her personality, too. She's, a very, she's just a, an incredibly beautiful, graceful, brilliant woman who approaches things with thought and caution and a certain pacing to even the way she talks that, you know, it didn't, it's, it's, it's tough to go up against the military like that. And it, yeah. it's a challenge that um, she's faced bravely and heroically, and she is beloved by so many in Myanmar. But this is, this is looking like, like, a, like a miscalculation. She took too long. It would be what some analysts are saying there on the ground in, in the region. I'm talking to Charlie Sander from the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, I forget, did you know Daniel Pearl? I can't remember. I know we discussed... His situation. I did. I was I was in uh, in the region when he was apprehended and had met him very briefly. Um, he was a beloved part of this press corps that was trying to cover Pakistan and Afghanistan in the immediate aftermath of 9/11. So, Every, and really, everybody, um, just a great journalist. Obviously, everybody knows the, about the the beheading, which is about as horrific as it comes, but. Speaking of injustices, which I guess we've been doing most of uh, the last 20 minutes, can you describe the latest injustice done to Daniel Pearl and his family? Yeah, so the court ordered the release of the man who had been previously convicted as the mastermind of his abduction and murder. And, you know, for, for me, um, Danny Pearl was the first of these horrific yeah. uh, the, just a horrific realization that journalists are not only going to be in the crossfire doing their job, but now they're going to be in the crosshairs. They're going to be targeted. Daniel Pearl was captured and targeted and, and as you say, just, just the most brutal public execution of a beheading. And here's the guy who is the alleged mastermind who now is going to be walking out of court. And, and uh, that will... Presumably, at least from, from what I'm reading, it looks like that could really unravel the other convictions in the case. And then we'll, we'll have not only a tremendous insult to the family of Daniel Pearl, but to all of us who care about the idea that, that there has to be accountability when journalists are, are targeted, that there has to be some, some commitment to people being held to justice, because most of the time, way more than 90% of the time, when journalists are killed, um, nothing happens. There is complete immunity uh, and and impunity to this um, in so many countries across not only the Middle East, but around the world. And, you know, I don't want to put too sharp a point on it, but but, um, it, it really is true that journalists are becoming under attack in America, too. And those members of the mob who sacked the Capitol have to get brought to justice for attacking journalists as well. You saw them smashing their equipment, threatening them, making nooses, saying, kill the media. We are very strong at pointing a finger, at, at, and rightly so, 
at those forces in the world that have targeted and then killed journalists around the world. I think we need to also be aware there's a lot of targeting and threatening of journalists right here in America that we've got to pay attention to as well. You know, beyond the physical threat, I assume you both saw the video of uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' uh, announcement that she's running for governor of Arkansas. Essentially, her central plank is that she fought off the fake media, the fake news in her time. I mean, it's just it. it, And by the way, people will say, well, there's no violence there. But it's that sort of environment created by a woman who I assume has a decent chance of being governor of Arkansas that helps create an environment in which all this other crap can happen. That's what I was trying to get at. That environment of attacking the media led to the mob targeting the media. I mean, I I know this is a small point given we had a, we had a, we had a attempted coup at our Capitol. That's the big point. Journalists were there trying to cover it, but I've seen the footage. We had a, we had a, a gathering of all of us who gathered around Jim Foley when he was murdered, um, in Syria by ISIS we started a movement for safety in journalism, and it was a real international movement. It started something called ACOS, which is a culture of safety for, for, for oh, sorry. It was a um, okay. real, real um, you know, movement, I think you could say, to try to address this issue. Uh, and, and that same group of journalists who, who really work internationally, work in places like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, we came together to share everything we know with local newsrooms in America that I fear are now going to have to struggle with the same issues we've been dealing with internationally, which is you have to now do risk assessments as a journalist if you're covering the Michigan state legislature, right? Yeah. Because that state house could That's get attacked. Point. It's already been occupied with guns once. The same is true in places like Ohio or in Florida, around the country. This is, this is something that I think this sense that local American journalists who are doing stories in these local places where Proud Boys and Boogaloo Boys and the militias are, are heavily armed, and I think given what we saw on January 6th, very dangerous. And now the new terrorist threat is domestic, not international. So I look at the Daniel Pearl case, the murder, the, what, it, what it said to us when we, when we all were just so shocked and outraged by that murder, it continued on. And I'd say, we better put an end to it right here in America and really think about how journalists are treated here in America and start standing up for freedom of the press here and the rights of the press here not to be threatened or intimidated. But, you know, just a quick thing. I mean, that's what I was talking about it, w- with Suchi in, in Myanmar, that here she was years in detention. Okay, uh, people are asked how could this Nobel Peace Prize winner seem to be now not, not doing the right thing. But here, right here in the United States of America, we have, <laughs> because I guess they're going to be primaried from the right, we have all these Republicans who, who can't even admit that, that Donald Trump lost the election. We can't have them stand up to these crazy, this crazy QAnon lady who thinks that, you know, that pedophiles are running the, the country and, and is attacking, thinks it's okay to, you know, the, the, to, to make light, I guess, online of somebody shooting Nancy Pelosi in the head. So we are really mm. pathetic, I guess. <laughs> I mean, forget well, you years know of detention. You know I would, I would, <laughs> would say the way we might put our arms around what all these things mean is when you have an erosion of truth. Right. When you have the media so under attack and, and political parties willing to, 
so, so question discernible facts and weaponize doubt, you end up eventually eroding truth itself. And when you erode truth, it's really hard to have democracy. And democracy is threatened when journalism is threatened. And I think that's the thing that I kind of would put, put a bow on this whole terrible movement we see against democracy is the crisis in journalism, you know, has a lot to do with the crisis for our democracy, but also democracies around the world. It's in Poland, in the Philippines, in Brazil. This kind of movement to say the media are the enemies of the people um, is, it, it's been around for a long time to go after uh, the messenger, to go after the truth tellers, to go after the quote elites when they are challenging authoritarianism. And that's what we're seeing around the world. And that's something we better look, take a real hard look in the mirror at right here in America. Charlie, hey, thanks, Charlie thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Marjorie. Great no to shoveling, talk to you. right? We can get away with that. Not for me. There wasn't <laughs> shoveling in the past either for me, but that's okay. <laughs> you and See me, you later, Charlie, Charlie Sennett. We're the ones that are worried about it. <laughs> Charlie Sennett is a news you, analyst here at GBH, where he also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, thank you again. Up next, uh, following the tradition of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., could the Black Lives Matter movement win a Nobel Peace Prize? The Reverend Zion Monroe and Emmett Price join us for that and much more on this week's edition of All Revved Up. Keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Marjorie Egan and Jim Browdy. Join us online and take on some of the moral dilemmas of the day. Our reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. They are both the hosts of the All Revved Up podcast. Irene, Emmett, good to talk to you both. Hey, thanks for having us back. Our pleasure. Yeah, great to and talk. And happy Black History Month. Oh, that's right. Starts today. Starts and happy today. to you, too. That is correct. So, Irene Monroe, you and I have gone back and forth in the Catholic Church several times. So now that we several find times. out that Amanda Gorman, the unbelievably talented poet, who's now got these, these books in the offering, they're going to be bestsellers, she's going to be reciting a poem at the Super Bowl, she's even got a modeling contract. I know. She, I know. I know. And she's raised in this black Catholic L.A. parish. I want to know if you're going to call up Amanda and tell her to straighten out the Pope. That's what I want to know, Irene. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I'm very, very glad that you and I can can talk on this issue and, and, and be happy about it. No, not at all, because she comes from a tradition of, well, she comes from a religious community of Catholic priests, and they're called Josephites anyway. And it had started, you know, this ministry was formed in uh, 1871, started to meet the needs of, of free blacks after the Civil War. So, no, I'm not I'm not going to be arguing with her uh, at all, but what I like about it. She's going to judge Jesuit in there too. I mean, she's got a Jesuit in there too. Well, you. Oh, absolutely. But you know, the, the point, the Afrocentric Catholic Church doesn't get enough attention here. If you remember Fa- uh, Father Stallings, do you remember him in Washington, D.C. in the 90s? Uh, he had the Imani Temple African-American Catholic Congregation. Well, okay. Well, you don't. But my, but my point is, is that when you talk about black churches, whether, it, whether it's Africa, the Caribbean, or the United States, I mean, it will always... You will always hear a kind of black theology, whether it's from, you know, Reverend Raphael Warnock's uh, congregation or whether you are hearing it from her, her particular congregation or, more importantly, Jeremiah Wright, who really is the embodiment of that kind of religious ethos. So, you, actually, can I say another thing? You also hear from the Pope when he talks about preferential options for the poor because right. that brand of Catholicism uh, is it, uh, shaped liberation theology, and we always hear the Pope. Now, I'm saying something nice about the Pope. Marjorie, say something, okay? <laughs> But they're still down with the Catholic Church on gays and women. That, that's the problem, right? Oh, so I guess that's oh, why. Ab- ab- I mean, absolutely. Emmett, you left town or know, what? You know, what happened? Oh, I'm here. <laughs> oh, you are? I, mean, I, thought, you, oh, I yeah. thought you just I had, I had to leave. Uh, I, Emmett, I, was, I was over in the peanut gallery. <laughs> yeah. So for those who don't uh, okay. recall. With Franklin. With Franklin. <laughs> you're an L.A. Uh, kind of guy. Yeah. Do you know the church? I know this church very well. And what's interesting about coming to Boston, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, this church framed my reference for the Catholic community. Mm. So when I came to Boston, I didn't really understand, you know, all of the history here in Boston because I grew up literally around the corner. This church was on Western Avenue, uh, St. Bridget, and the church that I grew up in was uh, 2040 West Jefferson Boulevard. And we were sister churches. Mm. So I, oh my always gosh. Knew, mm. we, I always knew Catholics who were who were who were black. And of course, it's, you know, uh, Latinx or Mexican, as we would call them in Los Angeles. But this church always had an Afrocentric. They had a gospel choir that would make mm-hmm. you melt. Um, they had some of the greatest <laughs> musicians around there. And, and so, I mean, you know, just a phenomenal church with a great vision. And they were very community oriented, particularly in the black and, and, and Mexican community there in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's quite a so great she might have, story. She might have been there when, when. Well, I guess not. She's, She's only twenty two. So you've right, been gone. Yeah, you've been yeah. gone from LA for a while. Hey, 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 Marge, I'm a little older than I look. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, okay, that's all right. Well, listen, on another on another great note, we open up the Globe today. What do we see? A great column by oh Adrian God. Walker about your spouse, Irene. Tell us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, the last time we talked, we had this conversation about Thea taking uh, the vaccine. And my whole, you know, how I was going to move forward with it is that she was my canary in a coal mine. And as we said on one of our episodes, that if she didn't wake up dead, which she didn't, then <laughs> we could go out, Emmett and I, as well as myself, and go get vaccinated. It was a beautiful so, sentiment. Yeah, your exact words, if I may interrupt, Irene, your exact exact words were if she ain't dead 
we're okay. It was what you said. So that was a we're beautiful, okay. beautiful right, slogan. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, I'm very, very proud of her. And and also, uh, what I like about it is that it's really getting the message out. And we're actually seeing a sea change here in terms of blacks really sort of lining up um, and, and going for the vaccine. And one of the things that Thea says in the article, she says they asked her, like, it's one vac- one of the vaccines for just black people and one for for white people. And, and that's a real important question because, again, you can easily pull us out by, by where zip code and where we live. And she said, no, you, you know, both vaccines are efficient and, and the vaccines are for everyone. As a matter of fact, you know, Cambridge is doing a wonderful thing in terms of for clergy here and that they consider us the second tier of frontline workers, which we are if we're doing funerals and, and meeting with folks. And they will, they have put out a call for clergy now to line up uh, in Cambridge and get their vaccine. So I'm very, I'm very optimistic seeing how we're moving forward and, and cutting through something historic historically steeped in our community, which is the history of the Tuskegee study. Well, you know, there's a, I thought of, uh, uh, in fact, I read the things almost simultaneously, the story Adrian Walker wrote about Thea. But we should the say glo- you see it is. Thea James, I think you said that before. I, I, did, did you a big shot, an is? ER doc and a big shot in the hierarchy at the great Boston Medical Center. But, you know, I was reading the piece about her, and then I'm reading the piece about how Blacks and Latinx people are always getting the short end of the stick whenever there's a fiscal or economic or health crisis. And I know that Thea has pretty much dedicated her life to those issues of equity. And let me read you a line. I had uh, um, Congresswoman Presley on TV with me the other night, and she wrote a letter on Tuesday to the governor about her concerns about lack of equity in the vaccine distribution. Listen to these numbers. This is a letter she wrote to Governor Baker. According to data released by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health, black and Latinx residents make up less than 3 and 4% respectively of those who've been vaccinated thus far, whereas white residents make up nearly 60%. Of those fully vaccinated. Again, according to the Congresswoman, three and four percent black and Latinx of those vaccinated, 60 percent amongst whites. So the answer is the Thea Jameses of the world and a lot of others are fighting a good fight, uh, Emmett. But to say that there is a long way to go on the equity front, as evidenced by this horror around the vaccine, is an understatement. It's a definite understatement. And let me just underscore uh, uh, two things here. First of all, Dr. Thea James is a brilliant thinker. Uh, Not only is she a phenomenal uh, doctor and and, and medical uh, administrator, but she's a brilliant thinker. And so in many ways, uh, seeing her beyond her being the canary in the coal mine, but as one who is advocating, gives me (laughs) so much hope and so much assurance uh, in this. You know, I was on the phone with my parents last night who are in Los Angeles, California, and, you know, they're of age. And I'm asking them, are they going to have the vaccine? And they're still kind of trying to figure out how do they get it? So I have been online trying to figure out how do they, you know, who are, you know, uh, you know, 70 plus uh, get the vaccine there in Los Angeles. So the access is the issue, right? The information is here. We know what to do, but we don't know where to go. We don't know how to get it. And we don't know if, you know, uh, uh, if we show up somewhere where they give it to us. And so I think that disparity comes out in terms of access and opportunity, even beyond the information piece. 
Yeah, I think what we have to understand is that those fault lines that were in society before we had this pandemic would be even greater when you have a pandemic or when you have something like Katrina. When you have anything that is of this momentum, all of those cracks even become wider. So oh, right. distribution it is, is a problem. I mean, we're talking about distribution of wealth, which is why that seminal study, that 2015 study that the Boston Globe, I think Spotlight team did, that found that non-immigrant black Bostonians household average was $8, which to this day, I, I, I still think there's an error <laughs> with the decimal point, but, you know, I'm going to go with it. And that for white families is somewhere in $250,000. Yeah. So we can't expect what is systemically problematic in society that when something like this that globally affects us all would not show up because the systemic problem has been affecting us all. By the way, just a, one small correction, because that is a statistic that really says it all for years. The Federal Reserve Bank of Boston did it, and it was published in that great spotlight series you're talking about, a racism in Boston, a couple of years later. We're talking to Emmett Price and Irene uh, Monroe. So th- th- I just can't believe what's going on in Washington, D.C. We have this uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, new rep, who has done all sorts of crazy things, seemed to be in favor of shooting Nancy Pelosi in the head, uh, has, has <laughs> said that, th- that these terrible shootings of children in schools, Sandy Hook and Parkland, was, was a false flag, didn't happen. Um, now, apparently, according to her next-door neighbor, or certainly someone close in the hallway, they represented Cori Bush. She's a new uh, a representative from Missouri. She's a Democrat. Uh, claims that Green attacked her out in the hallway without a mask on, accused her of leading a terrorist mob because she supported Black Lives Matter and harassment uh, with, uh, by her staff with no masks on. Now Nancy Pelosi has agreed to move uh, Cory Bush's office to get away from this 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 disgraceful person uh, from Georgia. What do you make of this, Emmett? Yeah, I mean, there's two things here. One, it's unfortunate that we as black folks always have to be the ones evicted in order to protect egregious behavior by non-blacks. Let me say it that way. I think Mm -hmm. the the fact Mm -hmm. that um, President Biden on day one signed an executive order making it mandatory for masks on federal property. Here you are as the greatest federal property there is. And you still can't keep this congresswoman in line. And that Congresswoman Cori Bush has to evict herself yeah. out of her own office mm-hmm. that she's already moved into to go right. down the hall to the proverbial black, I mean, back of the, I didn't mess up that a black of the bus, as it were, <laughs> just to be safe. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. Absolutely crazy. You know, it is a great point that they yeah. that they won't enforce the, the mask wearing thing or that you can't bring guns into the chamber thing uh, right. either. But go ahead, Irene. Yeah. I mean, I think what we see here, sadly, is really a cult of personality. I mean, I think with for Corey Bush, I feel for her because I remember her first week. It might have been actually her first day, and she had a mask on that that said Brianna Taylor, and they all thought that she was Brianna. Oh, that's Taylor. right! I forgot a, about God, that. That's right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So this is this is a party. So this is a party, and I mean, and, and I think in many ways, you know, Marjorie, you know, Taylor Greene is it highlights it to the most egregious form that is not in touch 
you know, with reality on so many levels here. I think the thing that bought, that I begin to think of, and I hope some of you got to see SNL uh, the other night. Yeah. Which did a wonderful skit on, on Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, you know, what's still working. But the, the, the thing is this, you know, I thought... Sarah Palin, Palin, is it Palin? Palin was was wacky. Palin, Palin. (laughs) I thought she was wacky on on the lunatic fringe, but this woman takes it to a a brand new level. I think the issue here that I'm trying to understand, and I had a talk with um, uh, one of my friends who's a Republican. He was the Republican sort of analysis for WBUR, Tom Donkey. It's like I asked him, where's the Republican Party? And what I mean, the traditional Republican Party where where are they now? Is there going to be a split like MAGA Party and then the Republican Party? Because where do you put now Romney and Baker and other Republicans? We know. I mean, I'm I'm concerned about what what happens because you, you none of us can live with this. None of us, none of us can really live with this. By the way, I don't know if you can. We have a little sound. I'm not sure you'll be able to make out what happened, but here is part of the exchange. The first voice you'll hear is Taylor Green. And then uh, Congresswoman Bush comes by. Uh, amazingly, Green posted this to Twitter, thinking it was a great thing. Essentially, you'll hear Bush, when Green is speaking, she's speaking on the whole, she's doing it with her mask around her chin, meaning serving no purpose and potentially causing great physical harm to her colleagues. Again, Green, Bush, and then Green again. Here it is. Criminals. You know what? Yeah, don't yell at people. Stop being a hypocrite. So what uh, Cory Bush said in the middle there is follow the rules and put on a mask. And I'll tell you, who that is sane that wants to stay alive would not say the exact same thing to their next door well, neighbor who doesn't give a Republican damn about anything. Congressman who infected people after the attack on the in Capitol the that room, refused right, to wear yeah. masks in the secure room. Yeah. I mean, these people have just gone bonkers. Well, you know, one of the things to think about, and and, and I would say that it's not it's not just Republican. I mean, it's what we see here It's it's inhumane. Like, I don't even think it's a party thing. It's inhumane. It's 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 this mere inhumane treatment of one another. It's horrible. I agree. Well, I think it goes beyond lack of humanity. I think it's criminal behavior when you're consciously putting other people at great health risk. But again, do yeah, they do anything about it? That's right. No, they don't. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's the stuff that I'm saying. No, we can't live with this. I mean, who really believes, really, that the Parkland, you know, shooting was a hoax or 9-11? Or even this crazy one. I mean, here's the, the line between conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism, that the California wildfires, yeah. okay, yeah. caused by a Jewish... Face laser. I mean, that is just absurd. So, so the inhumanity gets perpetuated by the appalling silence that goes on. So, I just like to know what ha- what happens to the health of the Republican Party as we once knew it. Uh, I don't know, but but apparently it was reported over the weekend. Jim and I mentioned this at the top of the show that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene apparently was. I don't know if she. I imagine the mother of a Parkland, a teacher that was killed at Parkland when he opened his classroom to let kids come in and and hide, who ultimately was killed. Uh, They had some kind of conversation where Green admitted that she didn't think Parkland was made up, but she couldn't say it publicly. So, you know, that's like even, I don't know what to make of that. 
Yeah, but that's what the that's what the mother said the, the, when she spoke with her about this. Tell you anyway. Are we going to move on to the good news? Yes, Black well, Lives Matter. Let's do it. Nobel Peace yeah, Prize to start. Yeah, I mean, really, it, it, I just think it's just absolutely wonderful, and 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 in so many ways, because you begin to see that stark contrast, particularly with the uh, Capitol siege on January sixth, which is a, a pox on our democracy. The difference between whites who want to overthrow the government and blacks who are fighting for racial justice and to end police brutality, but th- they're they're wonderful. I mean, it's just been wonderful because they've been able to mobilize people from all groups of society, not just African-Americans, not just oppressed people. And you ready, Marjorie? And we got to see in live and in, in, in real moments, <laughs> intersectional, you know, activism. That's it's right. Not centered around. Or, there you go. You, I expect you to say amen, but that's all right. It's OK. Um, I'm going to change my name. Around. My middle name, Irene. I'm going to change it. <laughs> Intersectionality. Oh, I love it. Okay. Okay. That'd be wonderful. I mean, we're seeing a lot of things. I mean, we're not seeing, it's not centered around a charismatic um, leader. It disrupts the sort of heteronormative black male leadership that we saw in the... um, in the civil rights movement. It's founded by three queer women. Women. I mean, I could just go on and on. This is the way I felt we could bring um, uh, in Black History Month, that this group that has been jeered at and scorned and questioned, I even questioned it at one point, uh, has really come full circle. And it started, I think, what, in seven years, in eight years, here it is. And it's, it's the organization, the movement, and not just a person. So I, I just love it. You know, Emmett, I don't want to put a uh, when when Irene is really upbeat. I hate to bring things down, but I was reading during the news break. I was I was googling the BLM and Nobel to see if there were any updates, if anybody else had nominated him beyond this one member of Parliament. And I unfortunately did not come up with BLM in Nobel. I came up with another name in Nobel to find out that nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize as well is one of Marjorie's favorite people, Jared Kushner. Uh, oh, uh, and she, wait till you hear. No, it's for Are you, you know serious? that. Yeah, because you know the deal with really? Israel, the normalization with Israel, and oh. a handful of. But 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 it gets better. It gets better. Guess who nominated? <laughs> Obviously, none of you have seen this yet. It's a brand new story. Who nominated? You get to guess. We'll go around the room. Who nominated uh, Jared Kushner? Marjorie, you get to go first. Who is it? You don't have to I be. I have no idea. By the way, I'll take a guess. Certain, Rudy Giuliani. That is so close. It is unbelievable. Uh, do you have any really? idea, Emmett or Irene? Yeah, very close. Don- Keep guessing. Well, Trump. it would be his Donald father. Trump. Close, no, no. Giuliani was a little bit closer. The person who nominated him was, drumroll, Alan Dershowitz. Apparently, (laughs) if you're a Harvard emeritus professor or something, well, I mean, Israel is, uh, other than Donald Trump, Israel is Alan Dershowitz's major cause. And uh, I guess he thought that, uh, whatever. So in any case, (laughs) I'm with you, Irene. It's a big deal, but it was tempered a little bit with the Jared Kushner uh, nomination. Did Great Emmett, to talk did, to you guys. Did, what? Did, we didn't get Emmett to, to, to if, if you wanted to say anything oh, more. I'll, I'll just this, simply Emmett. say amen to what Irene said. As much as I like to disagree with her, I'm in her amen corner with everything she just said. 
No, yeah. Okay. Amen to that. Thank Good to talk to you both. Thank you. Be well, you two. You too. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III join us every week for All Revved Up. Emmett G. Price III is a professor and executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Reverend Irene Monroe was a syndicated religion columnist, the Boston Voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail, and a visiting researcher in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at Boston University's School of theology and they of course are also the hosts of the all revved up podcast you can listen to it via apple Podcasts, spotify google play wherever you get your podcasts even tell your smart speaker to play the all revved up podcast okay coming up in just a few minutes another covid variant another vaccine dr Catherine gergen barnett is here to take our questions and yours about coronavirus our numbers 877-301-8970 uh, email is bpr at wgbh.org. Oops, at gbh. No, bpr at wgbh.org. Sorry. We are GBH, <laughs> Boston Public Radio. You can also tweet us at Boston at Boss Public Radio. And the doctor's going to be with us from 1 to 2, so we're really excited about that. Boston Public Radio, Marjorie and Jim Browdy. While we're pinning our hopes on the coronavirus vaccine to get us on the other side of this pandemic, if you've been listening to our show the last few days to the callers, the vaccine rollout clearly has been slow. It's been confusing from how to make an appointment to how effective they are in protecting us against emerging coronavirus variants. Joining us to help make sense of this and to take our questions and yours on the current state of the coronavirus and the vaccines is Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett. She's the Vice Chair of Primary Care Innovation and Transformation and Residency Director in the Department of Family Medicine at Boston Medical Center and BU Medical School. You can reach her at 877-301-8970. You can send her an email to bprwgbh.org. Dr. Gergen Barnett, as always, great to talk to you. Thanks for calling in. Thank you so much for having me. We're happy yeah, to. thank you so much. We really appreciate your time on this, Doctor. You know, I don't mean to start this on a um, on a negative note, but, but but Jim has been monitoring the Washington Post for days. You know about where we rank in Massachusetts, and now we, we've gone from the 30s to the 40s. Now we're 41st um, in terms of action compared to the rest of the country. West Virginia, a much poorer state, is doing pretty well. So, what's what's wrong with us? Well, um, so so wonderful to be with you. I think it's uh, very difficult to start on this subject, but I think really critical to be addressing. Um, there are there have been several bottlenecks. I think for Massachusetts and important for 
listeners to understand um, what some of the drawbacks have been. The first is, you know, really supply constraints. So I think Baker has been speaking to that, um, you know, very much in his press conferences from last week. Um, One of the pieces that I think that people are not understanding enough is that Pfizer is actually delivering less of the uh, vials of vaccine based on the premise that we can actually get more than five doses out of each vial uh, if we have a very special syringe. The problem is, is the special syringe makers were not aware that this was going to happen and therefore we need to be catching up on that part of the equation to get more vaccines out of every vial. Um, and, and, the, and then the second part is really that Baker has been using a very kind of specific methodology for rolling out the vaccine, which I think that listeners are probably aware of, but, you know, don't realize how this creates a bottleneck. So rather than just saying, you know, anybody at risk can come, which some states have done, Baker has been really clear about phase one and phase two, which we discussed the last time I was on the show with you, uh, which is good in uh, theory, but makes it more difficult in practice in terms of some of the bottlenecks. Um, And then the third piece, which I would love to talk more about as well, which is really groups have uh, larger um, hesitation and and lower uptake than we anticipated, especially in phase one, uh, which we also briefly addressed as we were talking about healthcare workers getting vaccinated um, last time I was with you. So all of these things combined means that we, um, as you rightly pointed to, Marjorie, are um, we only have about 6% or almost 7% now of our uh, Massachusetts residents have received at least one dose. Um, and, and almost 2% have received two doses. Um, but this puts us far behind other states. But, you know, Dr. Gargan Burnett, before we leave this uh, point, is clearly uh, Governor Baker's more deliberate uh, approach to who is eligible is one he's he said regularly he believes is the right one. And uh, that is unique to us, meaning every state has its own approach. The other two reasons you give, every single state is suffering with supply problems, not just Massachusetts. I can't remember what the third point you made was, but that's a universal issue too. And, and you know, and it's, it seems to me for a I have no idea. I mean, I clearly supply is part of the the problem, but but everybody else seems to be dealing with the supply issue quite well. It seems to me we have taken scores of phone calls the last three days, particularly as people who are 75 and older became eligible. We've mostly heard not so much, well, some people who are over 75, mostly from their 30 and 40 and 50-year-old children who are have tried nonstop to get them appointments, but the appointment process seems to be in utter chaos here. We don't even have a phone bank set up till I think at least Wednesday, when I think the reality is most people understood that seniors, a lot of seniors, weren't going to have access or skills to the uh, uh, to the internet. Doctor Coe, who I'm sure you know former commissioner of public health here, and then he worked for Obama, said there's a great shortage of vaccinators too. But why are we so behind everybody else in addressing these common problems? If you know, I mean, maybe there is no. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I wish I had a simple answer to that. I think we are all, um, even those of us who are in healthcare, are um, feeling the effects of the rub here. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and as a, as a daughter, you know, of, of parents who are very much in the realm of being able to get vaccinated today, also experiencing the frustration. Um, really? I think the, uh, yes. And I think, I think the mass.gov website, I, I think the lack of a very clear place where everybody can go and can, um, you know, when they're eligible and get an appointment. Um, is something that I know Baker is working on and his team is working hard on now. And I know there has been a lot of criticism and I know that um, Baker, like like all leaders, uh, you know, uh, especially here in Massachusetts, really take that to heart and, and drive quickly. Um, that being said, you know, the idea that seniors and people who speak all different languages and um, also may not have access to the internet, have to rely on this incredibly complicated system where you have to continue to refresh your screen in order to get somebody who's 75 years and older a vaccine is, um, I think, a real shortcoming of what's happening in our state right now. Um, again, I know that Baker and his team are working hard on this, um, but you know, I think the biggest part is how do we actually take the vaccine and bring it to the community, bring it to community health centers, get primary care doctors like myself um, vaccinating regularly. I know some of my colleagues have been starting to do that, you know, just sort of ad hoc um, in in parking lots, et cetera. But these things need to be um, brought into communities, especially vulnerable communities that don't have access to health care. Um, and do, you know, mobile vans and do things that we know got measles rates uh, way down mm-hmm. um, in the 1940s. I mean, just being creative, being innovative and taking it out of these very specific sites for dissemination. So I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think, you know, Massachusetts is not unique, certainly in terms of the supply constraints. Um, but we do also have more uh, demand than other states do. Let's, We're talking uh, to Dr. Catherine Gergen uh, Barnett. Can we go to the phones? Ready to go to the phones? Sure. Susan and Milton. Hi, calls. Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hi, everybody. I did have a concern, um, and I, I seem to not get, be able to get an answer. One of the senators here from Massachusetts did test positive for COVID after he received his second dose. I cannot Steve Lynch, find Congressman Lynch. He, uh, yeah, right. I, yeah, I wasn't going to mention I wasn't going to mention the name, but it, oh, it, 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 it is out it's there. It's on the front page. I don't uh, think you're hiding anything. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so my concern is, though, it's kind of like, okay, but wait a minute. Then why, when it's my turn, am I bothered getting it? Why am I getting it if he got a second dose and he got is tested positive for COVID. It's very concerning, and I can't really find the answer. When did he get a second dose? And how long after the second dose, are you, we don't know 100%, of, are, are you safe or it kicks in? So I have a lot of questions now. Those are good questions. questions Let's anyway. get answers. Let's get answers. It's a These fabulous, fabulous question. So, um, Susan, you know, I don't know all the particularities of, of when he got a second vaccine and, and when he got infected. I think, you know, it's really important for listeners to understand a few things. One is that we know the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are 94 to 95% effective. What does that mean? That means that there's still 5% risk that people can get COVID-19. 
once they've gotten a vaccination. Um, so it's very unlikely, but it's not completely out of the ballpark. But more importantly, including all of these variations um, and mutants that we're seeing of the virus, the vaccine actually reduces the amount of severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths significantly. So to get a vaccine means that you may get COVID-19 still, but the risk of you dying from COVID-19 goes way down. And to me, that is, you know, as a physician and, and as a person who, you know, lives in community, I think that's a compelling factor that people are not listening to or hearing enough of. Susan, thanks for the call. I have a couple of related questions. By the way, so I, I. I learned the same thing. That, so essentially what you're saying, uh, doctor, in the case of somebody who's gotten both doses, like Congressman Lynch did, it'll prevent the illness, but it doesn't prevent the infection necessarily. And that's one of the reasons why I guess we hear we don't have a clear answer as to whether or not a an immunized person is still contagious because they still, a la Lynch, can get the infection, correct? Yes. And thank you so much for bringing that up. That's absolutely another key part of the messaging that needs to go out, which is that once you've gotten your vaccine, you still need to be wearing the mask and doing all the things that we're asking people, because you may still have the virus in your body. You know, if you get exposed to it and you may carry it in your nose and then say you're with somebody who hasn't gotten that vaccine, they could absolutely get COVID-19 from you. Yeah, you're still mm-hmm. contagious. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding yes. uh, about that. And 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 because I think too that that not well, you're the physician, I'm not, but I do hear anecdotally about people, mostly younger people that have gotten COVID and they have no symptoms at all. The only reason they even got tested is because their roommate had it or someone they were close with te- had it and they were lucky obviously. Um but that's the issue that you ha- can have no idea you're sick vaccinated or not vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Marjorie. So, um, you know, the, the what you're pointing to, which has been a huge driving force of infection, younger people, and we've talked about this on prior shows as well, is, um, you know, younger people have better immune systems and um, often can have no symptoms and, and are, you know, sort of vectors uh, for illness just the same way that uh, vaccinated people can be. Um, and, and the fact is, is, uh, you know, we're still going to not have our young people vaccinated um, until sort of the third wave in, in Massachusetts. So, again, everybody who's been vaccinated uh, needs to keep their masks on and, and really be kind of aware that there's lots of um, virus is still going to be in our community for months and months to come. You know, uh, Dr. Catherine uh, Gergen Barnett, before we leave the, this topic that, that the caller from Milton raised, in normal circumstances, how many? I understand you have to keep wearing a mask, keep doing social distancing till we reach that infamous uh, herd immunity, whatever that may be. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how long after the second dose of these two dose vaccines uh, are you considered to be immunized? Despite the other, you know, extenuating things you talked about, is it ten days? How many days till you're you're it's set in, it's working? Oh yes, yeah, a couple weeks. Um, and, 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 and what I thought you were asking is how long are you going to be immunized once you get the vaccine? And so that's, that's a good one too. What's the answer to that? (laughs) Well, that, I wish I knew the answer. I mean, I think what we're doing right now are, 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 you know, what, what virologists and, um, 
uh, sort of lab scientists are doing is really looking at what are the level of antibodies in somebody's system, you know, sort of uh, and how quickly does that trail off uh, based on on when you get the vaccine? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that, you know, and, and because of all the mutations that are coming out now, um, you probably have read and seen that Moderna and other um, vaccine companies are already starting to make a booster. And so yeah. I imagine uh, that we will likely be hearing about the boosters. Um, and it may be just like a flu shot where we have to get an annual booster. We're talking to Catherine Gergen Barnett from BMC and BU Medical School. Charlie from Upton, thank you for calling. Hi, Charlie. Hey, uh, you sort of beat me to the question, Jim. My, my main question <laughs> was... was uh, uh, virus transmissibility after you've had the vaccine. So yeah. I'll, I'll spin it around a little bit and say, you know, what what's the status of research on just how transmissible it might be if for someone who's had the vaccine but happens to pick up a a, a dose of the virus? Is there anything anything going on, or is it just too early for that? Yeah, Charlie, that, you know, I, I, I um, it's one of those things where it's such a, it's an amazingly, quickly changing scientific landscape. Um, your question is is one that still doesn't have a final answer. Um, what we do understand is, again, that somebody who has been exposed to the virus um, and has been vaccinated can still carry the virus, uh, but they their risk of getting sick uh, will be incredibly low. The question is, is do your antibodies that you've generated because of the vaccine actually reduce the viral load that you're carrying and therefore are you less likely to give it to somebody else? That's the question that we're looking at right now. And I, and I think yeah. um, I'm very hopeful that we'll, we'll know the answer to that in the coming weeks. Um, but, but again, you know, just driving home um, uh, this really, really key point that no matter what, if you've gotten vaccinated, you need to act as if you are able to give it to somebody else um, and just really be mindful of your neighbors and your community, uh, just like you are now. We're talking Charlie, to you. thanks no for the call. That at all. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Gergen uh, Barnett. She's from Boston Medical Center. You know, uh, uh, um, several people are asking about the, the same thing, um, is how long the vaccination can last, and we don't really know that yet, correct? That's correct. Okay. That is correct, yeah. The other thing I'm getting is people want to know, now we're hearing that we should be wearing two masks, uh, you know, because of these variants, or get one of those N95 masks, which I thought we weren't supposed to get because they're needed by medical people. What's the mask deal, doctor? Yeah, so the mask deal, you know, they're, um, and, and I'm loving these questions. I think they're, you know, clearly people are reading a lot and thinking a lot about this. Um, there has been mixed uh, data on, on the mask deal, just, just like most other things at this point. Um, but it's really important uh, just to start with the premise that wearing a mask that is well fitted and that you can breathe is in is the most important thing. So um, if you're if you're doubling up on a mask, you know, there is a risk that you will not be comfortable. You'll not be able to breathe and therefore you may lower both of them um, or you'll be breathing out of the side of the mask. Um, so having every person have access to a comfortable, well-fitted mask is the biggest priority at this point. Um, 
There are questions uh, that have arised. Uh, I know from from certain people in Massachusetts and people, spokespeople who have been talking about N95s. Um, the fact is, is I, I again the priority and and Fauci has supported this. The priority for N95s is still very much for healthcare workers. Um, uh, but if you can comfortably get a uh, surgical mask, uh, which are you know quite low cost at this point, although I do think part of the federal government uh, response at this point should be making sure that surgical masks are free and available for every single person. Um, and then wear a cloth mask on top yeah. comfortably. I think that is not a bad approach. Um, and if somebody is able to breathe comfortably, then I think they should absolutely go forward and do that. 877-301-8970 is our number. Go ahead, Marjorie. Ron from Seabrook, New Hampshire. You're on the phone with Dr. Catherine Gergen-Barnett from Boston Medical Center. Go ahead. Hi, Ron. Oh, oh hi. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you, doctor, sure. for being here. This is very important information for everybody. Um, I am in New Hampshire. I've been able to get my first dose last Thursday. Congrats. Um, currently, the best I've been able to do for a second dose is more than 60 days out. I'm working to improve on that, but I'm wondering at what point does the interval mean that you may have wasted the first dose possibly? That's another great oh. question. Um, Oh, Ron. Oh, yes. It's such a great question. That, and that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I think one of the, um, to go back to why Massachusetts is quote unquote doing so badly is, you know, beca- in part because we are saving our second doses to make sure the interval dose is um, done at the appropriate time. Um, that being said, Ron, I don't want you to be disheartened um, because there is, uh, you know, a lot of countries and a lot of places that are really hitting the ground running with that first dose, not knowing when that second dose is going to be. And the fact is, is your body has developed a really good immune response already, you know, within, you know, 50% of being able to fight the virus. Um, and so that second dose will augment it when you get it, but you will still have that initial antibody response. Um, you know, again, because of the studies have really been done uh, with Moderna and vaccine um, and, and, and the Pfizer vaccine, you know, three to four weeks sort of space, we don't have the data of exactly how effective it is. But, but I am confident um, that you will um, still have a very good boost of a response. Ron, good luck. That was a great question. You know, speaking of uh, first doses or single doses, we're all reading that the only single-dose vaccine, the one that will require normal refrigeration rather than these ultra-super-duper frozen things like Pfizer and Moderna, <laughs> yeah. is this Johnson & Johnson thing, which mm-hmm. may apply for, I guess, emergency use authorization as early as the end of this week, the beginning of next week. Marjorie and I are having this discussion, I think, off the air. I can't remember if we did it on air or off the air. Maybe both. Is when people hear that uh, the good news about Johnson and Johnson is in terms of hospitalization and death, uh, it's in the 85 to 90 percent efficacy range. But in terms of preventing the illness, if I'm using the proper terminology, it's well below uh, Moderna and Pfizer, somewhere in the 70 percent range. And I was trying to convince Marjorie totally. Uh, inarticulately, that 70% was also great news. If I'm right, can you explain it better than I can? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, 
you 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 absolutely are right, Jim. Um, and and um, you know, su- supporting Marjorie at every turn as well. But, but yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Whether it's true or not, I'm trying to support her. Right? It's okay. Um, I'm used to it. So, so, you know, initially when we were talking about the vaccines, we said anything greater than 50 percent efficacy would be approved. Right. So the fact that we got 94 and 95 percent efficacy with Moderna and Pfizer, respectively, is is just knocking out of the ballpark. Mm -hmm. Shocked everybody. Um now it seems like, you know, um, J&J seems like this lonely stepchild at 72%. But that is phenomenal. Um, and, and it's 72% in reducing moderate um, disease um, uh, transmission, uh, which is, you know, far better than the flu shot. And we get the flu shot every year. So, you know, just remembering that piece and the fact, again, that you pointed out that it's been so effective in reducing hospitalization and death, um, which is obviously an incredibly important outcome uh, for these vaccines. And then the fact that it's one dose and, as you pointed out, Jim, can be refrigerated is going to change the way that global vaccination happens. Um, and so um, I'm just thrilled uh, that this, about this data and the fact that it will also, as you pointed out, um, have an emergency use authorization, hopefully within the next week or so. And by the way, and, and it seems to me the other benefit, there's a story in the Globe the other day over the weekend about how everybody would, assuming you have a primary care physician, most of us would prefer to get it from him or her. When the Johnson & Johnson thing comes out, I know there's a supply issue up front, but once the they they gin up their manufacturing, the I assume, this is a question, not a statement, I assume the likelihood of a individual doctor or a consortium of doctors who currently can't get Moderna or Pfizer because of the freezing requirements and the requirement that it be used in X number of hours, five hours or whatever it is, the whole bottle or whatever you call that thing. Uh, uh, it's more likely with Johnson and Johnson that it's going to go to smaller practices. Is it not once we get up to speed? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think the the fact is, is we, we talked about Moderna being really good in terms of being able to go out to more um, rural practices where, you know, they, they don't have to keep it at these ultra freezing mm-hmm. temperatures, as you pointed out, Johnson and Johnson just makes this that much more accessible. Um, right. and, and, you know, not only, uh, being able to disseminate it in the United States of America, but in, in all the countries that you can imagine, yeah. uh, just wouldn't have access to the kind of freezing temperatures that Pfizer requires. That's great. Uh, Dr. Gergen Barnett, I'm getting this question a lot too from people who are living with someone who are who's compromised and they're wondering Anna specifically asked about her partner has had a kidney transplant it was years ago but she's concerned about uh going to the dentist or getting a colon cancer screening or a mammogram or anything like that until her partner has been vaccinated twice and has been past 2 weeks so, so should Anna wait or should she go ahead and go to the dentist etc Oh, yeah. Thank you, Anna. I, I know that that is on a lot of people's minds um, and, and what we've been talking about sort of all along. Um, once we came out of that first surge, you know, sort of um, in the intensity of the spring in Massachusetts, um, we have since opened up a lot of these important 
um, routine healthcare maintenance uh, screenings. And, and really, you know, as, as somebody who does, you know, primary care at BMC, I can tell you, I see patients all the time and we're, um, you know, masked and, and gloved and um, with lots of procedures for cleaning things in between. Uh, so we keep these things very safe. Um, so, uh, and dental cleaning, you know, is an important part of your health. So I wouldn't delay uh, too long for, for great fear of, of giving it to your partner. Um, the good news is that um, Anna's partner, as well as other people, loved one, um, can get the vaccine in this next phase um, in Massachusetts. Yeah. So we're hoping, you know, soon. Um, if there's something that you know, if you're just saying, oh, it could, I could do it this month, I could do it next month or the month after, then, you know, one can go ahead and, and wait. Uh, but any kind of needed routine healthcare maintenance, really, you need to be um, trusting places uh, in the way that we are actually being very, very careful with every single person who walks in our door and making sure that we're keeping every standard up um, as possible to keep people safe. That's the voice of Dr. Catherine Gergen-Burnett. She's kind enough to give us an hour of her time, so she's all yours until 2 o'clock. Let's go to Natalie in Methuen. You are next with Dr. Gergen-Burnett. Hey. Hello. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. I am calling because I am in a position where I cannot get to the central location, and I actually can't even access the internet beyond on my cell phone which the plan does not allow for sufficient data for me to even spend as much time as it apparently requires so as I'm 76 have multiple comorbidities including by the way incontinence which makes it very difficult well impossible to go anywhere I am hoping that the state is going to have a program of mobile clinics similar to those that are used in Dorchester and other areas for vaccinating school children so that people like me can access the vaccine. I've been in lockdown for many months. I have, I've outlived my friends and family and I have an agency person who comes masked and gloved once a week to drop groceries off just inside my apartment door and goes away. And that's the entire human connection that I have presently. Other Natalie, than can I interrupt you? Only to say we are so we were talking about you without knowing. Yes. I mean, the generic you uh, and how one deals with that. That is the ultimate uh, uh question and yeah. i'm really glad dr gergen barnett is here to answer it what do the natalies of the world do doctor natalie i i couldn't agree more with jim and marjorie i'm just so grateful you called um because i think you bring up some really important points um one is the fact that you're isolated that you are um really needing the vaccine that you're the perfect person to get the vaccine uh, that you don't have the internet access that we just talked about, which is creating a lot of difficulty for people. Um, and then the, the last piece I would like to address briefly is the, the fact that you have so little human contact. So thank you for sharing that. But so the first thing is, um, you know, as Jim alluded to earlier in the show, the state is actually going to create some telephone 
um, capabilities for people to at least call um, and get vaccinations. Um, that being said, for somebody like yourself, where it's really difficult to even get out the door to get them for multiple reasons, I could not agree more. I think the mobile vaccinations are critical. Um, we have done that at Boston Medical Center. Some of my colleagues actually created a mobile van to do pediatric shots. Uh, I was doing well child checks on the sidewalk and giving vaccines. Um, so really being creative and disseminating some of that. And I, and I hope um, that, that Baker takes the Natalie's of the world um, and the stories to really drive that piece forward. Um, and then the last piece, which you talked about, which I think is so critical, and I actually wrote uh, an op-ed piece about this, is the loneliness factor, um, which I think I heard you say. And, and if, you're, if you're not feeling it, certainly I would feel that with just so little human contact and the importance of getting you and, and so many other people who have so little human contact vaccinated so that you could get back out into the world um, and, and, or vice versa, have people come to you um, and not have you be so worried. So I really hear everything you're saying. I think it's really important that your voice drives things like policy change and advocacy change. And I'm, and I'm hopeful um, that as we continue to roll out the vaccine in Massachusetts, that we do just this kind of thing where we bring the vaccines to people, to vulnerable communities, such as yourself, Natalie. And I really appreciate your call. Natalie, good luck, and we appreciate it. And Natalie, stay tuned in the days ahead that as soon as the governor announces that the phone banks are up and running, we will talk about it here. So stay with us. Go ahead, Marjorie. Thank you. Dr. Gregor Barnett, you just mentioned the the op-ed you you, uh, wrote in The Globe about loneliness. Tell people what you said. Well, actually, Vivek Murthy, who um, was a, a friend of mine, actually, we, uh, we were at Yale Medical mm-hmm. School together. Um, and when he uh, was Surgeon General the first time under Obama, uh, really used it as a platform for public health, in part because people um, don't necessarily understand the impact that loneliness, chronic loneliness can have yeah. on someone's health. So it's actually the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, is being chronically lonely. Yeah. And the impact on long-term health, short-term and long-term health. Um, So how do we um, really um, come together as communities? How do we address uh, loneliness? How do we make sure that, you know, the vaccine is one part of addressing it, but, but actually creating all kinds of community infrastructure um, is is really critical too, um, and and thinking about this for long term deployment and as we come out of the COVID crisis, I think is just as important for us in public health. You know, before we take a break, did you you I'm sure you know that Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, we talked about this on the show at the time, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain of the UK. Didn't she create a ministry of loneliness a I couple so. of years ago yeah. for exactly the same reasons, yes. which I, yes. I think is just is yeah. actually pretty terrific. Yeah. Uh, Natalie, again, please keep listening and we'll get you hopefully relevant and useful information as soon as it's available. Good luck to you. We're talking to Boston Medical Center's Catherine uh, Gergen Barnett, MD. She is taking our questions and yours about coronavirus until 2 o'clock. Keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan and Jim Brown. If you're just tuning in, we're joined for this whole hour by Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett. She's the Vice Chair of Primary Care Innovation and Transformation and Residency Director in the Department of Family Medicine at Boston Medical Center and BU Medical Schools. With us till the end of the show at 2 o'clock, taking your questions and ours at 877-301-8970. Obviously all about the coronavirus. You know, Dr. Jane emailed a while ago wanting to know uh, she's uh, 65 or she's older than 65, but she's not 75. She wants to know when the people between 65 and 75 can begin looking for a place to get vaccinated. Yeah, so um, Jane, when you go on to mass.gov, it will show you, you know, phase two and, and, you know, everybody probably knows that phase two begins today with people 75 and older. People 65 and older and people with two or more comorbidities is what we call them. So people with things like diabetes or obesity um, can go right after age 75. A lot of the sites won't let you sign up yet if you're six, just 65 and not yet 75. Um, but, you know, again, I think that keeping your eye out for that. I know that yeah. Baker is speaking nearly every day. Um, and it's quite certain that those announcements will be made when we can start to um, make our appointments if, uh, if you're 65. Um, you know, that being said, I speak to every single one of my patients that I'm seeing now. Um, if they're not yet in the category, making sure that I'm answering all of the questions and getting them prepared and we're thinking about it in advance. So, um, you know, if you have not yet spoken to someone you trust or love or, you know, to answer all your questions, I really, really encourage you to do that now in preparation for signing up. And by the way, this is not going to be reassuring anybody, uh, but uh, I assume if Governor Baker follows the same uh, pattern that he followed with the beginning, the announcement that phase two was beginning, uh, and obviously today was 75 and over, he announced that uh, a handful of days before sign-up, uh, was uh, available. That's the good news. The bad news was we've been taking calls for days talking about <laughs> right. what a you-know-what the sign-up has, uh, right. has uh, been. You know, I, I assume yeah. you're getting this. I, I assume you're uh, probably a little bit too busy to be listening to our show three hours a day. But even the successful <laughs> I ones... I wish I could. I wish you could, too. Even other than, was it Renee, I think, was her name today? There were today a few. From Chelsea. Very good experience at Fenway. Very good experience at well, Gillette. Well, no, but once they got an appointment, a lot of people were exactly. saying Gillette and Fenway were great. But other than Renee, who said, from Chelsea, who said she got an appointment and a second appointment within a couple hours each, even the people who have gotten appointments, for mostly for their parents, it's mostly younger people, 30, yeah. 40, 50, who are computer savvy. For a parent or an in-law or computer right. savvy, right, talked about doing it for a week. Or doing it for yeah. hours and hours and hours. and it is is just it is it's unconscionable as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And we haven't talked about yeah. it, nor do we need to. But a central pre-registration system like West Virginia, like Indiana, like New Mexico, which reaches yes. out to you when the appointment's ready, yes. is what we should have done, yes. and hopefully we still yeah. do. Let's go to Woburn. Ed's on the phone with Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett. Hi, Ed. Hi, guys. Uh, Jay Marjorie, thank you for giving us a voice. Doctor, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have a question that I know that a lot of people have the same questions. And here's the thing. With 4,000 people dying daily, why are we not vaccinating the vulnerable first? 
because uh, unless you tell me that all the 4,000 people dying daily are all essential workers, I'm having a hard time understanding that. Also, uh, what about the people who are already infected? And if the answer is going to be, oh, if you're infected, you shouldn't take the vaccine. How do you know you're not vaccinated someone who's already infected that didn't show symptoms unless when you show at a vaccination site, they give you a rapid test to determine if you have the virus or not. Because and also it has to do with a previous uh, caller that, that was referring to the age group. Age does not necessarily mean that you are not healthy uh, yeah. or that you are vulnerable. So those are the questions that I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are wondering about. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Ed, great questions. Um, and, and, you know, you should be running some of these vaccination sites with your rapid testing. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great <laughs> idea. But um, so the, this question of high risk versus vulnerable. Um, so the way that, um, you know, it's a real patchwork what's happening in every state right now, because every state has basically taken what the CDC guidelines were and then decided on their own way of rolling it out. Massachusetts really, again, Baker really focused on high risk. So looking first at uh, healthcare workers, essential workers, people in prison systems, people in nursing facilities, et cetera, those more likely to be exposed and those more likely to, um, because of their constant exposure, to get very sick. Um, so, but what you're talking about is vulnerable populations, and those two terms can be a little bit intermixed, and, but I think really critical. So the vulnerable populations piece, I think, is a really good way of looking at sort of equity. It's a good equity lens, right? So it's saying anybody who is vulnerable, um, 65 and older, comorbidities like we were talking about should come first. And that's how other states have done it. The good news is for Massachusetts is we're getting into that stage. We are going to be vaccinating people with illnesses. We are going to be vaccinating people who pack groceries um, and and are really out there. And and I'm grateful for that. And those vaccines are coming. Um, So so, you know, uh, so please stay tuned for that. The, The last part of your question that I heard was, you know, how do we know if you're showing up to get vaccinated? that you are not already sick, we don't. So we screen people for when they come in for symptoms. But to your point is, what if somebody comes in and they're asymptomatic and they get it and they get the vaccine? So nothing bad will happen. Um, and again, those people will all be required to wear masks when they get tested and, and you know protocols will be followed to keep people safe. Um, but it may be that They'll get vaccinated and then they'll come down with symptoms and they'll say, oh, how could I have symptoms? I just got vaccinated. So there are cases where people are getting vaccinated when they are already positive and they don't know it. So um, so these are great questions. And we don't yet have um, kind of mass surveillance testing for um, you know vaccine sites. Um, but as we you know, another critical part of this equation, we're talking a lot about vaccines right now. But we absolutely need to continue to talk about, you know, masks and ventilation and filtration and tests, um, frankly, and and getting testing out into these sites is critical. So thank you so much for calling, Ed. Ed, thanks for the call. 877-301-8970. Let's go to Maddie in Watertown. Hi, Maddie. Hello, Maddie. Uh, Hi, thank you. How are you? 
Good. Fine, thanks. This has been the best segment, the best segment with you, doctor. Um, I listen almost every week. So my question, my friend got her vaccine, the Pfizer one. She works at McLean's and she's read the paperwork, said, if you had an anaphylactic shock, which I did, I was stung by a bee and I had to go to the hospital and that's when I had to start carrying the EpiPen. Do you know anything about that? If she thought I couldn't get the vaccine because I'd had the anaphylactic shock. I'm so glad you called Maddie because I'm sure there are other listeners who have had a history of anaphylactic shock. Um, we are still recommending that people with a history of anaphylactic shock come with their EpiPen um, please get it in a place where you can be monitored. Um, you know, a lot of these places, they are monitoring you, but I'm telling my patients with a history of severe allergic reaction to be getting it done in, in a clinic um, or, you know, in we're, we're actually doing some vaccinations in our hospital right now, um, but, but really making sure that you have the EpiPen with you, that you talk to whoever is um, administering your vaccine, that you have this history. Um, so that people can really be there on the standby. And every single person who has a history of um, some sort of anaphylactic reaction and has got their EpiPen with them, every single person has recovered. There has not been um, any, you know, uh, bad outcomes from that. And, and I think the, the impact of getting a vaccine is far outweighs in terms of a positive impact um, the risk that you bear, but but I can understand how that would uh, that would feel frightening, Maddie. Thank you for your question, Maddie. Thank you for the call. You know, Doctor, there was a caller before who uh, raised the uh, a question I'd thought about too, and I'm really glad he asked it. He said he got his first shot, I think, in New Hampshire. He said 60 days ago. Oh no, it couldn't have been 60 days ago. I guess his second appointment his second one is 60, 60 days, apart, days after, yeah. and he's worried that the effect of the first one will dissipate to a degree where he may have to start over. And you assured him that the impact of just the single dose, the first dose is so good, don't worry about it, get it when you get it. Obviously, it's better if it's in the three or four week yeah. range. Yeah. If if I apply that logic with which, with no expertise, I am in complete agreement based on what I've read. When we looked at the CDC data this morning, there have been 1,060,000 doses distributed to Massachusetts only 580,000 doses administered. Why not just give every single dose, administer every single dose we have so that there's some layer of protection for almost twice as many people? And I've said this four times on the show, but a friend of ours, Marjorie Nine, who's a healthcare executive, said the good news is, in addition to you'll have some level of immunization for a far broader pool of people. It also gives you much more leverage with the federal government when you've used up all your vaccine and you say, mm-hmm. I need more, rather than saying I have 500,000 in, uh, in freezers somewhere. Why not just give every twice as many people some layer of protection rather than reserving hundreds of thousands of doses for second shots? Yeah, I think that you're asking a really critical question that I think a lot of states and individuals find themselves asking that question, right? You hear stories of, uh, I think it was in Washington State where they had extra doses and they're running out on the street with flip-flops, just giving it to whoever was there, you know, in the snow. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it's quite a visual. Um, But, but, you know, and, and, and a place like Boston Medical Center where we still have doses from phase one, we are now giving it to anybody who hits the category of phase two. So 
you know, the hope is that those doses will get administered. I think for, you know, and this will get better. What is happening right now is like this incredibly difficult transition between now all of this huge demand that is occurring and not enough supply, which we talked about. This will even out, people will get their doses. And I, but I think right now, um, we are still trying to maintain the scientific kind of validity of doing it three weeks uh, and four weeks apart um, and keeping those doses. But I, I think your point is really well taken, Jim. And, and I, you know, I think that, um, you know, Fauci really recommends that we stay on this uh, kind of um, dose protocol um, and and we know that the effect will be good with one, but not as good. Mm-hmm. And so if we have the capacity to do two doses for every person, that is better than doing one dose. Yeah. yeah. So I think just, you know, maintaining that and, and ensuring that the, the supply uh, speeds up and that we can get this better on track in terms of people getting in there and <clears throat> getting vaccinated. John Paul from Fall River, you're on the phone with Dr. Catherine Gergen Barnett from Boston Medical Center. Go hey ahead, there, John. Yeah. Good afternoon, Marjorie and Jim. Thank you, Doctor, for taking the time. Um, quick question: I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. I've been on a TNF blocker uh, about a year and a half prior to contracting COVID in January, before anybody knew what it was, and uh, PFT tests, all kinds of blood work, all kinds of things. Finally, able to in November of this year get an antibody test that I was chasing forever validated my thought that I definitely had COVID. Then they followed up with another test in just a couple of weeks ago, and I no longer have the antibodies. So two-fold question here. One, should I still go back and take the TNF blockers, which is an immune-suppressing thing, which, and ironically, I think I actually did myself good by taking that year prior to getting sick. And the, the second, what is your thought about the vaccination for me getting it? And will, am I likely to get sick? Again, because I had it already and I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't breathe. I had some issues like that, but I didn't get like deathly ill. I mean, ironically, I sleep with a CPAP anyway. Uh, I still do take some uh, um, immune suppressing stuff like prednisone, which is what got me through the three or four months of the nightmare I had. What is your thing? What is your thought on all of that? Wow. John Paul, thank you. I, I, uh, I found myself almost like taking your medical history here. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, but I, you know, I think just to kind of break down your questions, because you have a lot of um, good, good kind of questions within your question. Um, The most important thing is that you, for anybody who has gotten uh, the virus and, you know, gotten through it, we are recommending that sort of sit, you, you don't want to get the vaccine right away after you've recovered, we recommend a window of 60 to 90 days. Um, So that's really critical. I have a a colleague who actually um, received his vaccine soon after um, being sick and, and got, you know, got basically all the symptoms again. So, so we don't want that uh, to, you know, we, we don't want to put you under that um, stress or strain or anybody for that matter. Um, but, but, but we are recommending that everybody get it, even if, uh, they've had the virus before. Um, and then the second piece that you are asking in terms of your TNF blockers or the medications that you take for your sacral is, um, your arthritis is, uh, you know, if it reduces your symptoms, then I would encourage you taking it. Um, but just making sure again, that you touch base with your provider, 
um, to discuss the risks and benefits of you taking it and when you take it and how long you should be on your immunosuppressant. Um, you know, because I, I, um, I would love to give um, individual medical advice to every person who calls in, but, but I do think at the end of the day, people need to be checking in and, and making sure that whoever their provider is also knows um, when you're going to go back on that medicine and when you're getting the vaccine. John Paul, thank you for your call. Good luck to you. Doctor, you've got, I assume you've gotten both doses, yes? Yes, I have. What kind of relief did you feel after the second one? Uh, well, I, you know, just so much. And I found my mind already kind of going towards the future mm. um, in a way that I hope that we all have that experience. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I was on radio or uh, television last week and, and was talking about, um, you know, imagining that we're sort of in the Boston Marathon and this is sort of Heartbreak Hill, right? So it's like we've got those tough miles ahead of us. Um, but we can sort of see the end. And I think, you know, when when one gets that second dose of vaccine, there does have that sense of like, OK, we're we're we are marching forward. Um, you know, for the listeners who are interested, I, I was also very proactive about taking ibuprofen around the clock um, and, and tons of fluids and um, and sort of, you know, was able to uh, sustain post uh, second dose with without much difficulty at all. So what percentage uh, of there people are, ways are of, I'm sorry, what yeah, percentage ahead. of people are having uh, uh, I wouldn't say serious, uh, some kind of reaction uh, after the second dose? Yeah, I would say the majority of people have oh, really? some. Um, yeah, have something. I mean, it's you know, whether it's a light ache or a light oh, headache yeah. or I just mean, more, feeling, more than that. you know, more, more serious than that. No, I mean, it, it is, it is pretty rare. It's uncommon. Um, and, and so I think that everybody should expect to just feel a little bit achy, a little bit blah, you know, a little bit, mm. not your hundred percent yourself. Um, but that's okay. And the good news is that means that it's working, right? It's like, you know, how can we shift this around and actually say, gosh, what an amazing thing that here we are so worried about not getting signed up for the vaccine the first day that, you know, phase two opens, but like taking the bigger perspective and saying, this is incredible that we have these vaccines. They are here. We're going to get them. It's going to be okay. We've still got a long way to go before we sleep. Um, but please, please, you know, make sure you're talking to your loved ones and your neighbors and and seeing how making sure that we can all get vaccinated so we can try to get back to some sense of normalcy. You know, Charlene did talk about a, a reaction she got from her first dose of the Madonna vac- uh, Moderna vaccine. And 40 minutes later, her face was red hot and blotchy, no hives, no shortness of breath. She's wondering if she should take Benadryl before her next shot or whether that will affect the vaccination. Uh, it will not affect the uh, vaccination. In fact, I just uh, one of my patients called me over the weekend um, with with a similar um, uh, kind of hivey almost uh, yeah. reaction. It sounds like, um, and so I think Benadryl is a great idea, um, and that's what I recommended for my patient as well. Um, but also lots of fluids um, and just you know the important thing for for anybody who's listening who is an employee um, is uh, sorry an employer is how do you make sure that all your employees are going to get some time off? It's paid time. 
that they can go get the vaccine, if they're having any sort of side effects the next day, like that is part of what we need to be doing to make sure that this is equitable too. is not it's making sure that everybody can do it without any fear of recrimination, um, you know, in terms of the work front. We should also make clear to people it's free. That's another thing we've and uh, it's free. taken a walk on, critical. so people shouldn't worry about that. We have time for one more quick one. Marjorie, you pick it. Jill in Burlington, thank you for calling, Jill. Hello, Jill. Hello, Jill. One more, Jill. Well, we seem to have lost Jill. <laughs> uh, we got to go elsewhere. Jill, our apologies. We uh, gave it a try. Where do you want us to go next out there in Brighton? Our colleagues, they'll tell us in a second. Andrew in Manchester. Hi, Andrew. Yes, hi. Um, all four vaccines have this polyethylene glycol. Now, some people have reactions to this. So the question is, uh, one more thing about it, too, is they say that the reaction is much stronger after the second shot of the viruses. So my question is, are the uh, makers of these vaccines aware of this, and is it possible to make this vaccine without the polyethylene glycol? We have a minute, too. Andrew, yeah, thank you. That? I don't even know what that is, Nor Doctor. Do uh, it's like a stabilizer that oh. is just, you know, um, what the mRNA is in. Um, so, so, Andrew, great question. Um, again, I'm not a vaccine maker, so I don't, and, and, and certainly don't know um, enough of what all the other kind of stabilizers they've tried to use in order to put it in vials. Um, I think that the the side effect, again, has been really mild um, for people. And, and again, um, only the people who have history of anaphylactic reaction have had um, very serious um, kind of reactions, all of which have been incredibly treatable. Um, so, again, just really, you know, touching base with whoever is going to give you the vaccination, saying you've had a reaction to this knowing what the reaction is, if you've needed an EpiPen to come with your EpiPen um, or to come with Benadryl, whatever it may be. Um, but but I, I don't imagine the substrate will be super different in the coming months. Um, but we've got a lot of vaccines coming down the road. And and oh who knows of, of some of the one, other ones that are being um, uh, pushed forward. Maybe they'll have a, a different substance. Andrew, thanks. And doctor, as always, you were terrific. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Getting lots of kudos from our emailers, doctor. I want you to know, I think they're in love. I want you to know. (laughs) Thank you all. (laughs) Thank you. Take good care. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye. Dr. Catherine Gruger Barnett is the Vice Chair of Primary Care Innovation and Transformation and Residency Director in the Department of Family Medicine at Boston Medical Center and BU's Medical School. We thank her again for taking the time to join us. Thank you all for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes, which is aptly named Boston Public Radio. Wow. Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by the Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young, CNN's John King, and the ACLU's Carol Rose. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley, and our newest crew member, Mackenzie Farkas. Our Welcome, engineer Mackenzie. is John the Claw Parker. Our offsite engineers are Miles Smith and Dave Goldstein. What's on TV, Jim? Well, we're going to do bad news and good news. We're going to talk to some people who've been trying to get their parents uh, vaccines, and uh, that person will be paired 
with a state senator who's working on getting the state's response better. And then we're going to go to the good news. The lead researcher on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine from Beth Israel, he's going to join us. And then a leader of CIC Health, which is in charge of the vaccination sites at Gillette and uh, oh, Fenway, great. which apparently great. are running pretty damn well. So again, we'll plumb the bad and the good. That's all tonight at 7 o'clock in Greater Boston. I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks again for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow, and I hope you have a great afternoon despite the massive snowstorm. Bye. Bye. Bye.